0: Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo.
1: And I'm Drew Evans.
0: Today on The Mock Review, we're going to be discussing the 2019 National Championship final round. Uh, We know we're really the first people to sit down and have any discussions about the final round, and we figured someone should. Um, Obviously, many, many people have discussed this round, and we've been talking about doing this episode for a while We finally gathered all the information that we uh, needed to gather in order to make it happen. And Drew, I'm looking forward to what I hope will be an interesting and edifying conversation that can be beneficial to the community.
1: For sure. I think that just about everyone has been in some way or shape anticipating, expecting, and getting excited about, or I hope, this podcast. Um, I think that... It, it's it been something that's been in everyone's minds since the final round. As someone who was sitting in the final round, it was something that I immediately saw and said, oh, we're going to be talking about this, aren't we? Uh, it's really changed so much about the way we're going to do mock trial in the future for better or worse. Um, And it's something that we need to get on and talk about and hopefully figure out a little bit and hopefully express um, both sides in some way. Uh, but I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I think, as you said, I, I hope it will be a very illuminating conversation, and I hope that people will gain something from it. Uh, one thing that I do want to preface everything with, you know, look, ben, ben and I are doing this because we enjoy it. We do not pretend to be the official experts on anything concerning mock trial. We definitely have not met the prongs of 702. Uh, But we are talking about this and trying to be as equivocal as we can. Um, We obviously have our own opinions, but they should not be attributed to either side in this type of issue. Nor, uh, I know at least for my part, I would ask that no one attribute this to anyone they meet from Haverford. They are wonderful people. They all may very well disagree with me on many of these things. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I do think it's important as this is a very contentious issue to make sure people understand that we're not trying to be, we're not trying to anger everyone. We're just trying to explain our side or at least what we believe and, uh, hopefully gain something from it.
0: Yeah. And, and to echo that last point too, and I think this, uh, somewhat goes without saying, but, you know, I express my opinions on this podcast as, you know, Ben Garmo, uh, mock trial fan and not. Head coach of UMBC Mock Trial, and and certainly don't attribute this to uh, my students. I don't know if my students disagree with me or not, but my students seem to disagree with me just for fun. So <laughs> I, you know, there's a pretty good chance that many of them disagree with me on this. Um, so a few administrative things about this episode that we have to sort of cover before we get into the meat of things. Uh, first of all, in terms of who we're going to be talking to, uh, talking about each of the different sort of sides of this, uh, we sent two different interview requests to AMTA. Uh, Neither of them garnered a response. Uh, So we've not heard anything back from AMTA and no one from AMTA will be speaking to us on this episode. We did reach out to Yale uh, and asked them to have someone, various people appear on this episode. Uh, Yale declined to come on and speak with us and they referred us to what has already been posted on perjuries. uh, And we're certainly going to be referencing those documents, uh, multiple points throughout this episode. Finally, we did reach out to Rhodes Uh, and asked if they'd be willing to speak with us. Uh, Rhodes, I think sort of collectively as a team, the the group that competed and and was associated with that team, has decided they don't want to dwell on the past, and so they've declined to speak with us about any aspect of nationals or or the final round. Uh, Thankfully, however, we did get someone who participated in that round who's going to speak to us, because Ian Lampert, two-time All-American, fantastic competitor, two-time national champion, and judge in the 2019 final round, is going to talk to us uh, in just a little while. We're very excited to, ha- to talk to him. So the way this episode is going to go is in a few minutes, Drew and I are going to walk through the basics of what happened. We're going to walk through the case background just real quick to give everyone a refresher since it's been a few months. we are gonna talk about the case. We're going to talk about Yale's theory. We're going to use some clips to explain Yale's theory. Uh, and we'll mention the areas of controversy. After that, we'll talk to Ian. And We'll go through as much detail as possible about the final round and his experience judging it. And then after Ian's interview, Drew and I are going to hop back on the mics, just the two of us, and we're going to have what I'm sure will be a lengthy and and hopefully interesting discussion about uh, the final round, our perspectives on it, and sort of where we go from here.
1: So uh, to kind of get into the background of what exactly this Nationals case was about, I'm going to try to explain it in a mildly succinct way, but probably not so succinct. But essentially, this case, uh, Empower Milk versus Jerry Anderson, it was a civil case in which the defendant was being sued for defamation. since what happened was Empower Milk was a, a large sports drink manufacturer, and their signature product is Almond Power. Uh, there was a competing Company, the Midlands Dairy Farmers. And essentially, the Midlands Dairy Farmers had uh, a a person named Jerry Anderson who had been pushing their product. And this person wrote some dissatisfactory things about almond power. Um, Important aspects the Midlands Dairy Farmers had a contract that provided milk um, to schools. And there was also competition uh, at one of the specific stores for shelf space between the Midlands Dairy Farmer's Milk and the Almond Power Milk. So both the contract and the store space were kind of the two uh, damages that were going to be argued about whether or not there was – whether there was a loss in in those ways. Uh, In order to compete with the Empower Milk – Industry, The dairy farmers, as I was saying, they acquired Jerry Anderson, um, who was a, a local sports star and teams got to choose whatever sport they wanted Jerry Anderson to be a, a star in. Uh, and Jerry Anderson would then promote through their social media accounts uh, the dairy farmers uh, company. Essentially uh, a few days before the, the big vote by the school board to determine who's gonna get this big milk contract at the local schools, the head of the dairy farmers company, a man named Dakota or man or woman or whoever you portray them as, Dakota Rivers, uh contacted Jerry Anderson and encouraged uh Jerry Anderson to quote make a splash and try to get the contract uh, for the dairy farmers. And that same day, Jerry Anderson was in a grocery store and claims to have overheard two men discussing how Almond Power, uh, again, the rival company, has lead in it. After hearing that conversation, Jerry Anderson went onto social media and posts that every bottle of Almond Power has lead in it, that children are getting poisoned and dying. And at the end of the post, Jerry Anderson writes, hashtag drink real dairy. Now, after this post went live, Empower Milk alleges that they lost the school board contract because of it, they lost out on sales, and they are now suing Jerry Anderson for defamation. Uh, There are many different defense theories that could have been uh, discussed. From my understanding, teams argued that the plaintiff... Uh, hadn't proven the statement was false, which they would need to do in order to prove it was defamation. Uh, You could also argue that Jerry Anderson wasn't acting with actual malice. And you could also argue that Empower Milk didn't actually suffer any harm in terms of their sales. Um, And that's kind of the general overview. So Ben, can you explain to us really briefly, what exactly did Yale do that uh, people didn't really agree with? Sure. So
0: Uh, the best way to explain that I'm going to play a clip in a moment, but I want to explain something really quick about what we're doing. So, uh, there will be one or two short clips in this episode, uh, from the final round, uh, based on my research, we're okay to do that in very limited amounts, uh, through essentially fair use policy that we're not making any money from this podcast. And we're using very short clips from the final round. So please don't
1: send us any donations.
0: Right yes, please we'll send them back. we don't want them. we don't make any money on this podcast uh, we just you know waste a lot of our time uh, but um what we have the benefit of is that, as we've discussed before, the round before this, Yale played my team, UMBC, on the defense running this exact same theory with roughly the same our witnesses were a little different than Rhodes, but Yale had the same witnesses, and the vast majority of Yale's presentation in that trial was verbatim the same or almost verbatim the same for what they did in the final round. So, what I'm going to play here is an excerpt from Elizabeth Bay's closing from the UMBC versus Yale round. It's not exactly the same as how Elizabeth delivered her closing in the final round, but it's similar, and it does a good job of explaining Yale's theory in their own words.
2: And so they hired Miss Anderson. You heard today that when they told her what her job was, she thought her job was to make posts, posts promoting dairy. She was happy to do it. She was happy to post pictures of soccer players with milk mustaches, happy to post pictures of herself drinking milk or eating ice cream. What she wasn't happy to do was tear down other competitors. Because, members of the jury, you heard today from multiple witnesses. That she was asked, time and time again, post something negative. Post something that will take down and power them. And she said, no. And members of the jury, let's be clear here. They want to talk about a promise she made, a promise that would get her $200,000, $300,000. She knew she'd made that promise. She knew that money was on the line when she was asked to make those negative posts. It was in her contract. And she still said, No. So now we have to ask, what changed? Because nothing changed for Miss Anderson. But something did change for the Midlands Dairy. They got desperate. You heard how they're calling her on a daily basis saying, please, we need you to post something. And time and time again, she's saying, I'll try. But she doesn't post what they want. Mr. Rivers, he gives her a little push. He sends those men. He sends two men to a grocery store. Now you heard today from Mr. Sullivan that those two men they were pretty unusual. These weren't just two men in a grocery store. They walk into the grocery store.
1: They walk back to the
2: mill pile right where Miss Anderson's staying. And they start talking about lead, loudly. Now, that's not something Miss Anderson can say. She can't see how unusual this is because she's standing in the back of the store. For Miss Anderson, these are two men talking about how their kids are getting sick. She saw two men talking with no reason to believe they were lying about their kids getting sick after drinking almond powder. she was worried. She believed them. She posted what she thought she had to post. Members of the jury, she was a pawn in someone else's game.
0: As you heard in that clip, Yale's specific theory was that Dakota Rivers, who was, as uh, Drew just mentioned, the president of the Midlands Dairy Farmer was essentially uh the mastermind behind this whole plan and that because he was afraid that he was going to lose that contract that Drew was just talking about and by the way i'm using he here only because i'm referring to yales portrayal and and yales portrayal of dakota rivers uh was a man uh he basically uh their theory was he planted the two men in the grocery store that jerry anderson claims to have overheard making certain statements that they then in some form parroted uh, in that social media post, that was the issue in this case. Uh, one thing to understand that is very interesting about this theory is the way this case was written. For the first two rounds, uh, the call order was actually, I believe it was it was P D P D P D. So the plaintiff got the first call. Dakota Rivers was a swing witness. Um, however, for rounds three and four, that call order switched and it was DP, DP, DP. So my understanding is in round one, Yale ran this theory against Emory B, but Emory took Dakota Rivers as most teams, including us, would have done if they had the first call because Dakota Rivers had a lot of plaintiff benefits. So Yale ran the theory without having Dakota Rivers. When they went against us in round four, that was the first time that that caller swapped. And so they took Dakota Rivers with the first call. And it was the first time that this theory with Dakota Rivers on the defense had been run in. Uh, in round, so it it was an interesting theory. Obviously, we're going to get into the details a lot later, but uh, their basic premise um, was essentially that Dakota Rivers. I mean, you heard Andy say it that Jerry Anderson uh, did not act with actual malice because she believed these statements to be true and the reason she believed them to be true their argument was is because these two men made these statements specifically with the goal of jerry anderson hearing them and wanting jerry anderson to do something as a result in this case make a social media post that would allow or increase the odds that the midlands dairy farmers would get to get the contract and continue to uh compete well against empower milk
1: It's important to understand that this theory they ran against UMBC, as everyone pretty much knows, they then continued and ran that same theory. They called Dakota Rivers in their final round against Rhodes. And as a result, uh, they were sanctioned by AMTA. We will get into some of the details about uh, right, wrong, and everything in between on that. But to just summarize what those sanctions were – AMTA published the letter um, and their sanctions letter on their website. And what they wrote was, and I'm just going to read this as a quote from there uh, AMTA found that the defense team committed multiple egregious and proper inventions of fact across multiple witnesses in the 2019 national final round. In this review, AMTA concluded that the inventions were planned and intentional by the defense team, as they were previewed in the opening statement and referenced throughout the trial, including objection arguments. AMTA notes that while an attorney's statements are not themselves inventions of fact, they are considered in providing context to witnesses' testimony and determining if the invention of fact was egregious. See Rule 8.9, subsection 4, subsection A, subsection 2. AMTA further considered the fact that the defense team committed similar inventions in Round 4 of the National Championship Tournament as further evidence of premeditation. Additionally, AMTA concluded that the defense team committed egregious and improper inventions of fact that included disclaiming specific aspects of a witness's affidavit on multiple occasions. In AMTA's view, when the defense team disclaimed explicit statements contained within the affidavit, it essentially negated the ability to impeach. Because of how the facts were invented and integrated throughout the trial, no sufficient in-round remedy existed. Uh, now, with that sanction, they also had uh, various punishments that that were uh, incurred on Yale. Uh, those included that the championship round, as well as the All-American title designated to people competing in the championship round, were vacated for all of the competitors from Yale, and they vacated the championship. Uh, as If you check AMTA's website right now, it says no winner declared. Uh, and to be clear, Rhodes was not named the champion. It was just, again, no winner declared. Uh, the next uh, sanction they had was that all of the rostered members, um, both on the plaintiff and defense side, um, are not allowed to compete uh, beyond regionals next year. So they compete at regionals, but they cannot compete at orcs or at nationals. So if you're seeing Yale at orcs or nationals, it is definitely a uh, going to be a, a team that is not comprising some of those really, really phenomenal competitors. Uh, and the last thing was that certain students that are on Yale's team uh, that were on the, in that round are not permitted to coach or compete at all for the next year. Um, and they did not specify who those people were, but just that certain students that were involved. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's it for the, the sanctions themselves and the punishments that Yale got. Uh, we're going to go ahead and talk to Ian, and we'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to The Mock Review. We're thrilled to be joined today by Ian Lampert. As I'm sure many of you are aware, Ian has a long and storied career with the American Mock Trial Association. Uh, He was a competitor at UCLA. He's a two-time national champion in 2011 and 2014, and a two-time All-American in 2011 and 2014. And for the purposes of this episode, he was also a judge at the 2019 final round. And we're really thrilled to be joined Uh, by Ian to give us his perspective on that final round. So Ian, thanks so much for talking to us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Ian, I want to start out kind of the way that we start out with a lot of our guests. I know we're going to talk about the final round in a little while, but obviously you had uh, a very successful career uh, in mock trial during your time with Amtos. So what, in terms of your origin story, how did you get started with mock trial? What was the beginning for you?
3: I didn't compete in high school mock trial. I competed in high school speech debate. The event I specialized in was impromptu speaking, where you have two minutes to prepare, a five-minute piece of oratory. So when I went to UCLA, I looked up previous impromptu speaking state finalists, and I thought, what are they doing if they're at UCLA? There was a competitor named Lena Casey, who later went on to Harvard Law School. She competed in impromptu a few years before I did, and she was a senior and on UCLA Mock Trial's executive board. So based on that, I thought, if she could make this transition, and I don't see the appeal in college debate so much as in high school speech, maybe I could make that transition. So based on that very small piece of trivia, I tried out for the UCLA mock trial team. And my understanding is that some of the e-board members were less receptive towards my strange obsession with previous results of a niche high school extracurricular, and others (laughs) were pretty impressed by it. and. Despite the split, I was able to get on to the team.
0: Okay. Um, that's that's funny. I, I I can see, having been through the process of picking teams in college mock trial, I can see how that divide could happen. But I think it's fair to say they might made the right call. So uh, your time at UCLA obviously was very successful. You won two national championships there. So what, and this is a very broad question that I'm sure you could talk a lot about, but what stands out from your time at UCLA? Um, does any particular year, one of those two titles stand out or or any specific experience while you were there?
3: I think the most important year was my sophomore year. After we won my freshman year in 2011, six out of the eight championship team members returned. And we had a very good preseason and a very good regionals and orcs. But at nationals, it fell apart. Part of it was regional, because it was in Minnesota, I understand that Gail A, a couple years back, also had some issues in Minnesota. And our style Mm -hmm. was, I imagine, similarly bombastic to how their style was perceived. Mm -hmm. But also it was that we were trying to do the exact same thing, despite shifts in the group's dynamics. And that made me think about the importance of team chemistry, and about a culture of organizational integrity and principle that is always attempting to learn and adapt. That later on became my area of study in my master's and currently my doctorate. So I think that year where we had all of the talent to repeat and then we didn't partially because of things within our control, that's what really made me think and what made me appreciate the activity even more.
0: Interesting. And, and you mentioned it briefly, but I, I wanted to ask you, so obviously, you, you know, you're not competing in AMTA anymore. Uh, so what do you do now? What, now that you've finished with AMTA, what's your uh, current study or, or current uh, work that you do?
3: First, as I mentioned, I'm studying for a doctorate, specifically in EDD and organizational leadership and learning. But additionally, I'm teaching at a high school. I teach communications, speech, debate, and mock trial. Our speech and debate team has done fairly well. We're second place overall in America last year, and we're gunning for the top spot this year. Our mock trial team is comprised of the same speech and debate members, and we use it as an early season warm-up to build on camaraderie and connection, because in speech, your individual performance doesn't necessarily impact others' performances. But as we know, in mock trial, everything is interconnected. So I think it's very good as a team building activity. And additionally, I work with a group in Shanghai. It's called Stooges Education, which probably sounds better to folks in Shanghai than folks in America. (laughs) But it focuses on getting... Shanghai's high schoolers into good American colleges, and the differentiating factor is offering high-level American mock trial competitions. So I'm actually going to move out there next year, and I'm going to teach there. During the previous summers, we've hosted a single competition called the Peer Potential Mock Trial Championship, and to mock nerds, it is legendarily impressive. I'll give you an example. Last year, I was co-counsel with Justin Bernstein, And we put on an empire case together against multiple All-Americans from the early 2000s from McAllister College and a smattering of top witnesses. So right now it's real niche, but perhaps in the future, as production quality improves, some of these showcase rounds can be released because I felt like Tom Holland in The Avengers, surrounded by these old mock trial (laughs) of legends. You haven't lived until you are practicing an opening for Justin Bernstein.
1: Okay, uh, volunteer me for next year but <laughs> that's that's so cool, uh, so Ian, uh, on to kind of the good stuff now, i obviously we love hearing about you, but the reason why we have you on today, aside from getting to hear all of this fantastic stuff about what a former mocker is doing, is about the final round this last year, two thousand and nineteen, Yale versus Rhodes, so you were one of the many judges in that round um that you know. A, act as a jury and scores the round. How exactly did you go about becoming a judge for that round? Were you contacted? You know, how did that go?
3: Yeah, I was asked by Grant Keener months in advance, and I was truly honored to receive the nod, especially because I am not a lawyer. I have never been to law school. I don't intend to go to law school, but I thought that was alongside some very skilled lawyers from the area he might get one or two former mockers who see the activity differently than perhaps a true attorney who has never seen a mock trial around might.
1: I mean, that's such a great point. I I think that I I was very pleased to see you there for a lot of the reasons that you stated of mockers do have very different perspectives than real lawyers, uh, to put it in air quotes. Um, And it was great to have you there. So uh, to kind of get into it, let's just – start out by saying, you know, you're judging. Did you know that it was Yale versus Rhodes when it first started out? Or were you kind of going in completely blind?
3: I wasn't going in completely blind. When I walked into the room, I recognized the Rhodes coaching staff on one side. And then I recognized Bayes, <laughs> Parker and Chase from the previous final round, which I commented on alongside John Woodward. And then I saw Dan in the audience. So I was able to put two and two together. (laughs) And I was worried that going into the round with an awareness of the competitors could equal a substantial bias. So I probably talked an excessive amount of times to AMTA reps before finals about whether that was okay, because I anticipated that something similar might happen based on discussing the bracket with Mike Kelly, a UCLA coach, the previous night. And I did that because if UCLA made the finals, certainly I would recuse myself. And I wanted to know if perhaps I flew out to Philadelphia to judge one prelim, which would have been fine because I'd never been before, but I just wanted to be sure.
0: So you did, you judged a preliminary round like at the tournament as well?
3: Yeah, just one round.
0: Okay. What, uh, was there any difference between, uh, because obviously you don't need the judges presentation, but for the final round, the behind the scenes stuff beforehand, was there any difference in terms of like how they prepped the final round judges versus how say, a normal AMTA tournament would prep a normal slate of of round judges?
3: I can't speak to every final round, but in that prep session, what I noted is that there were a few technical difficulties in getting the PowerPoint up. So I remember that most of it was verbal as opposed to visual. I wonder if there were some things in that PowerPoint that were not communicated to the final round judges, not about the invention of fact and recanting technicalities, but about witness scoring that may have shifted the outcome either way even further.
0: So you, you said that you had judged one of the um, prelim rounds. Had you read the case materials before? Did you have a familiarity with uh, the case or did you go in blind on that fact aside from what was in the presentation? I went in blind. Was, was that just sort of a specific decision where you figured you'd be a more effective or more fair judge if you didn't know anything about it?
3: I think so, because I form opinions about cases and appropriate theories and about ways that witnesses could fight very quickly when I look at case packets. And I think it's probably better to just evaluate the ethos of the presenters. And if it doesn't pass the smell test, then probably it's a reason to mark the presenter down.
1: So along those lines Ian uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into how you approached scoring you were just kind of saying that you thought that the judges presentation may have changed the way some of the other judges scored the witnesses so i mean you're just kind of talking about it a little bit but can you get a little more details for us on you know what is what constitutes a 10 what constitutes a 1 and what's everything in between sure
3: so in that final round i don't think i went below a five or a six let me briefly talk about the judge's presentation with witnesses the reason i think it may have led to differentiating scoring is because based on what i recall my fellow judges were very generous across the board with witness scores to the point at which at least on one ballot it seemed to me to be a wash like the witnesses didn't matter because everybody was scored the same i think more time spent on how one scores witnesses up or down for cross would have been useful for those judges, especially because I remember in my meeting with those judges prior to the ampTA presentation, some of them were asking me about my paradigms and my experiences, because at least one or two of them had not judged a mock trial round before in this format. Hmm. Uh, now to go back to your question about what's a one, what's a five, what's a 10. So a 10 out of 10 is when everything is perfectly believable and there's a wow moment. The narrative makes sense the structure is sound i have a preference for a uva structure of opening and closing three facts three <laughs> questions but it doesn't need to be that way for me to logically follow what's being presented if things start distracting me for example an excessive number of names used without indicating why they matter to the trial an excessive amount of facts that don't appear to be linked up to the core theory body language that is distracting a answer that a witness gives that does not fit with the previous portrayal they had been showing me up to that point, all of those threaten the score and means that it can be dropped. A really amazing 10 out of 10 is Daniel Stern's cross of the character witness in 2016, up until perhaps the three quarters mark. My recollection is after Dan Stern does that amazing bit where he's walking back and forth with the tape measure, then he goes to one final cross pocket that the witness is able to adequately fight his way out of. I think that Dan Stern may have been served better if he ended there when he knew he had the 10, especially because that last quarter wasn't something that was closed on. It didn't matter to the rest of the trial. So with that in mind, I imagine that when I'm scoring, you've got this little wave, this little graph, and you start off at a certain score and the score goes up and it arcs down and we see what we end up at. I think when you get to that 10, stop at that 10 because otherwise you just can go down. You can't go up anymore.
1: So I don't know if you remember every score that you gave, but do you recall if there was anything that stood out to you? maybe not even as just a 10, but as an element in the case where you're like, oh, like that was just like a perfect. That's exactly what I want. I struggle to say that anything in mock is truly perfect,
3: but the moments that really impressed me, I'll walk through five. The first moment was Adam Chase's direct. He was an easy 10 in that round. <laughs> Fantastic mm-hmm. character, really funny, John Mulaney style of stand-up, <laughs> worked for the moment <laughs> yeah. in the trial, didn't lose that much credibility with whatever inventiveness was there. I was a huge fan of Daniel Elliott's cross. I loved that. That was a 10 for me. And it was particularly notable because I was unaware of who Daniel Elliott was. I didn't know about his reputation in that round. He was just the middle. And I did not love his direct. I didn't love the demeanor. I didn't think that it connected that well with the witness. And so I wasn't expecting that much out of the cross, And I thought the cross was really phenomenal. Another 10, I don't quite recall what I gave the cross of the defendant. It was a 9 or a 10. If it was marked down to a 9, it may have been because it went on too long. I recall that it was a very long cross that covered a whole lot of things. But I remember that the Yale witnesses this year didn't seem as well prepared on cross examination as some previously fantastic Yale witnesses like Patrick Doolittle were. The whole point of Patrick Doodle's witness in 2016 was to preempt that cross-examination and make it seem non-responsive. It seemed like these witnesses had a very good narrative on direct that fell apart relatively quickly on cross-examination. And I thought Rhodes did a good job capitalizing on that. So I thought the opening from Rhodes was very good. That was a 9 or a 10 for me. It did a very good job laying out the key facts in the case. It humanized the plaintiff. It didn't preempt the defense, but it didn't need to, because it was a fairly complicated fact pattern with you know, strange economic things you got to prove. It seemed like there were a lot of elements they had to prove. And the last bit that was almost a 10, and it would have been a 10 with a different rebuttal, was the plaintiff's closing, who really kept it together, especially after the strange set of circumstances that had transpired in the previous direct. I think that that closing would have been an easy 10 if that closing had simply commented on how inane and unrealistic a well-known CEO blubbering and falling apart in front of a courtroom actually was.
1: Very interesting. So uh, let me ask you another like not necessarily if you remember all of your scores, but midway through the trial, you know obviously uh, at the end of the round um you know your ballot was in and and to our understanding you sided for Rhodes. But midway through, did you, I mean, before all of the shenanigans, if I will, uh, with their rivers, midway through the round, where did you think it was? Did you feel like the defense had the edge, the plaintiff, were you kind of still split? You know, where were you? I was curious to see what the
3: defense would do, because I recall talking to a representative from Yale a night or two prior to the final round, and he was just commenting about how fun and interesting the defense theory was. So certainly that was coloring in the back. I was thinking, what's going to happen next? Because no fireworks had occurred up to that point in the trial. And one thing that I took issue with in terms of Yale's crosses is that the crosses didn't necessarily further their very specific and niche theory of the case. I remember that part of one of the cross was attacking the credibility of a witness and then trying to get the witness to admit to facts that were good for the defense. And what I was thinking at the time was, what's the point of attacking this witness's credibility? This doesn't help your narrative because you want this guy to be believable for your side of the story to make sense. So up until that point, I just wasn't sure where my ballots were. I also remember, though, strongly preferring Yale's witnesses, especially on direct, to Rhodes' witnesses. I thought the Rhodes' witnesses were trying their best. I thought that they had fun characters. But in particular, I felt the second witness was not believable in the context of that trial. And... You know, I'm sure he's had fantastic rounds. He is an all-American witness. But in the moment, it just did not do it for me. And I expected that he was about to be out by Adam.
0: So we've sort of mentioned it uh, in passing a few times. But obviously, the sort of the key moment, not necessarily in the scoring, but just in terms of kind of what happened, you know, what transpired afterwards, was the Dakota River's direct examination and cross-examination. And I come from a really interesting place with this, as as a lot of our listeners know, because, uh, as you may or may not be aware, Yale played us at UMBC the round before, and they they were defense, and it was the first time that they sort of ran that uh, full defense. Uh, and so we kind of got a chance to see it, and then it was run again in the final round. So what do you remember about your reaction To And I won't ask two separate questions, I'll just kind of put it all together, to the direct, to sort of the character portrayal that Elizabeth and Joe did, and then uh, you already commented a little bit on the cross, but sort of the impeachment and the cross-examination and everything that happened with Dakota Rivers.
3: Okay, so when they started off the examination, it seemed strange to me, because Joe, who I had not yet observed in a trial, was clearly a good actor, making very interesting choices as a performer. I felt like those choices at the start of the direct were not appropriate for what that witness would likely do. In other words, this guy appeared in court close to already being a blubbering mess. And it took just a few questions from Elizabeth to push him over the edge. So it seemed fake to me. And you can do hostile witnesses or semi-hostile witnesses very well, but I just gotta get wrapped up into the reality of the situation. And so it seemed like a variation, which is something I talked to Joe after the round before all this stuff happened. And he said, yeah, we're trying to experiment with the variation on the Patrick little type of thing. And what I told him is it doesn't seem like it's there yet. I thought that it started off already at nine in terms of intensity and there was little to go in terms of up. And then as things went on with the cross-examination. I didn't hear the recanting of the affidavit super clearly. What I heard instead was a very evasive witness saying stuff that would not make sense for this individual under those circumstances. And I really appreciated when the witness yells, I'm trying to help you, You what do you want me to do? And Daniel Elliott says, what you can do is answer my questions. I just thought that was a really good moment on his part. So Joe was a quite good actor and a really good performer. And so on the direct, even though I had those misgivings about the choices, I remember scoring him high. I think it was a nine. But then on the cross, just based on the evasiveness and the sliminess and the fact that the narrative just made less and less sense to me that Yale was trying to produce, I dropped him to a six or a five. I think that if I had clearly heard him recant the affidavit, it would have been a much lower drop, like a one or a two, because that you can't have mock trial when people just ignore what's in the affidavit entirely. But in the room, in that moment, that's not what I heard.
0: Okay, that's that's really interesting because obviously that's a major, major focus of uh, the sanctions and everything. So we'll kind of bleed over into that for just one second. Was there was there ever a point when you were listening, I guess mostly to the cross-examination, because uh, that's when the contradiction would have been pointed out, where your alarm bells, not just your evasiveness alarm bells, but you're like, hey, this might be cheating alarm bells. Did those ever go off or did it just never really seem that way? From your experience live in the room?
3: Live in the room, it didn't really seem that way to me. The alarm bells did not go off. After the round, I was unsure which side I ultimately went with because I think that Yale had a lead based on the narratives of their first couple directs that made up for some lost ground on their crosses. And I knew that I had tanked Joe on cross, and the closings were relatively close. So I was not sure how my ballot ultimately turned out. And I'm pretty sure it was two or four points in the direction of Rhodes. I think that if I had clearly heard that recanting, then it would have been a bigger swing for Rhodes. So
1: uh, I'm really intrigued by the fact, Ian, that you didn't feel like you heard a recanting, but you did find the cross to be very effective because, I mean, a a large part of the cross that Daniel Elliott did was his attempted impeachment of the witness. So do you think that If you didn't believe there was any form of recanting, did you think that the impeachment went well? Did it work? Or did you kind of feel like that part fell flat and there were other things that you really liked?
3: I thought the impeachment was really great. The impeachment and then going towards the contract was all I remember about the cross-examination. But I remember it being a very effective cross. What I recall was the witness was being very evasive in a way I didn't find believable and then eventually conceded to the things that Daniel Elliott was pointing out after an excessive amount of hand-wringing and saying, I'm trying to help you, to the attorney.
1: Interesting. Uh, so the other thing is, and you kind of alluded to this about not knowing exactly how your ballot had fallen, but when you have a witness that fought as much as, as he did, did you did you go back and, and change any other scores? I mean, was there any like... Ooh, like that's so slimy that I want to take away from his direct score or from the direct of the from the attorney's score. I mean, did it affect anything else, or was it pretty much just like you tanked the cross and you moved on? You didn't think about how it was going to affect the rest of the case.
3: I know that I didn't go back and change the direct score because I wait until the potential redirect is done to write in the initial direct score. Also, part of the direct score is the objections that may be raised during cross, so there wouldn't have been a change.
0: Speaking specifically, because the way you phrase it, right, is you talked about how you didn't hear the recantation in the room. So since all of this has gone down and and since sort of all of the sanctions have been handed down, have you gone back, to, gone back and looked at what was released and, and given any more thought to sort of like uh, what happened af- in the aftermath with the decisions that Amta made?
3: Yeah, I think that it's strange because I wasn't around for the sanctions that were raised against that team that I think had uh, the kid admit to recanting the affidavit could you refresh me on what that was in that previous case yeah
0: the, the so i think you mean the bailey on my understanding is basically on direct examination, they laid some foundation for the notion that Bailey was pressured by her mother or her parent and the police to say certain things. And then on cross examination sort of answered with like, yeah, I said that that's what I was told I was supposed to say or thing, you know, things along that line. Drew, do you feel like that basically?
1: Uh, Yeah. Essentially, as you were saying, I don't know about the direct, I know that on cross um, when they were, uh, there was an impeachment attempt the witness's response was, oh no, that's just what the lawyers and my mom told me to write. And of course, being a defense witness, that makes the the prosecution and the and Carrie Bellione, the uh the mother in that case, uh look really bad, um, which makes it kind of tough to further impeach a 13-year-old child.
3: Got it. So, okay, having missed those rulings, I default to what I remember about sneakiness with affidavits and case theory back from my senior year. And in my senior year, I remember that we had to pursue ultimately three charges. It was a theft by deception. It was an accessory to robbery, and it was a felony murder. And the theft by deception was so difficult to even discuss because it was so complicated. A lot of teams went explicitly against the spirit of what was written in the case to get around that and put on a cleaner show for the judges. I remember that NYU's prosecution pretended the first charge meant something that it didn't. Princeton's prosecution pretended the first charge was the same as the second. Our prosecution mentioned the first and then never talked about it at all during the trial. So that's where I came from. And I remember in my freshman year, a big part of our defense was about a specific word bronchospasm, which applies to a condition that the decedent had suffered, according to us, on the defense. And Bronchospasm was listed perhaps once in that case material. There was reference to a respiratory condition, but the whole bronchospasm defense was definitely extrapolating. It seems to me that teams have gone further and further trying to see what the line is for taking a really small thing in the original case material and then trying to blow it up into an essential part of their narrative. And I think the problem that Yale had this time is they, went, they just went too far. I think they went two or three steps beyond that line in order to put on an interesting and probably entertaining in a non-mock context where it's being scored in a particular way kind of case. But I don't blame them for doing so because I think that they crossed that line probably thinking they wouldn't be caught for doing it because so many others had kept pushing what that line initially was.
1: So Ian, uh, Have you – just before I even get to this question, have you read Elizabeth Bay's perjuries post about uh, Yale's uh, opinions on the sanctions? I've skimmed it. Okay. Um, So this is kind of – I'm kind of curious if your interpretation – what your interpretation during some of the the Rivers Cross was. So when the Dakota Rivers gives the line – I don't. I didn't want to get sued. I don't know if you're the the context surrounding that. If you recall all of it, but I'm curious what you thought that line meant. Was he referring to I don't want to get sued, so I lied in my affidavit, or was it I don't want to get sued, that's why I didn't want her to write the the post that way?
3: It was unclear to me. If I recall in the moment, the rivers were just yelling a whole lot of stuff <laughs> and. It was pretty absent of context and it was pretty non-persuasive in the moment. However, I, I think that it's sort of willfully blind to claim that that wouldn't refer to, I didn't want to be sued uh, because, and that's why I didn't write it in the affidavit, right? Like that is a logical interpretation of what was said in the moment. And if that was part of a planned cross-response saying, I didn't want to be sued, and that's why I told the defendant such and such thing, I think that the witness should have made every effort to finish that sentence and explain that more clearly.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the thing that's interesting about that is that I I actually was also sitting in the room um, during the proceedings, and I, I had a similar reaction to you. And to briefly talk about this, I I actually had... I've heard it and I thought to myself, I was like, does he mean that he didn't want to get sued because you know he didn't – so that's why he didn't write it in his affidavit? And, and that gut reaction you're having, I think it, it is a valid one. And for us to say otherwise, I think is nonsensical. Clearly, a lot of people felt that that was the interpretation. What's interesting to me is having read what Elizabeth wrote and also kind of thinking about what that would mean – you know, does that still make sense? And I think that what you said about it being unclear is extremely valid. I think that at the end of the day, it was just really intentionally not clear. And then you get into this argument of does, is it the witness's job to clarify? Is it the crossing attorney's job to clarify? As someone who has normally been an attorney, I can say that it's really frustrating that oftentimes witnesses get to Say a confusing answer and it makes the attorney look bad in certain cases. That has always frustrated me. But uh, it is a really kind of interesting discussion. And I, I'm curious I mean, obviously, when you get into recanting the affidavit, you know, the witness needs to explain themselves. I, I think that if you're going to say, I, I disagree with my affidavit, there needs to be some sort of explanation. And people clearly feel that there wasn't one. But do you feel like? There was any onus on Dakota Rivers to have given more explanation, considering the fact that you didn't think there was a recantation, but just simply did it make sense for within that answer for him to have said more?
3: Yeah, I think it would have one of the problem is that the Dakota Rivers portrayal was clearly strong acting, but the character was not a real human being, how a real mm-hmm. human being would act in that moment. So I don't know what would have made the most sense for that interpretation of a CEO to say in the moment. What I do know is the reason that I didn't feel there was ultimately the recantation is I recalled the witness after a lot of back and forth conceding to the things that were asked by the attorney. That's why it felt more like a time suck tactic than a recantation tactic. I think that if that witness had clearly and unequivocally said, no, I lied in my affidavit, or you synonyms for that, and then not budged on that position, that would have been clearly interpreted as a recantation. Um, And that would have been over the line for everybody in the room. But perhaps the witness in the moment of cross kind of realized that they were getting too close to that line, that perhaps their case theory had already pushed them too close towards already, and then started fudging that line as much as possible.
1: So, you know, I'm not sure if you listen to all the other podcasts that we've done, but in our most recent episode in which we interviewed uh, Adam Chase, one of the things that Adam talked to us about was how Yale kind of designs their their witness theories or their, their witness characterizations. And one of the things that Adam said was that they kind of make sure that their witnesses characterization fits the overall theory that they're going for. And I think it's, I, I wanted to mention that because I think it's so interesting that what you're kind of saying is that you felt like that took away from the characterization because they kind of went too far in your mind. It, it it became not a real human, and yeah, it served their theory really well. It really helped, but there's a certain line that kind of has to be drawn. Of yeah, it's got to serve the theory, but it still has to be a real person. And would a CEO, you know, break down like that uh, in a real trial? It, it's a really it's a fantastic point. It's really interesting.
3: And also, what I'd say is the theory just has to make sense on the face of it. And the ultimate theory here is that this was a strong and morally willed enough and patient enough individual that is the defendant that they can turn down request after request to slander and demean Empower Milk. But they are at the same time are so susceptible and so naive that two random dudes sent by a desperate and conniving dairy CEO can immediately persuade them to post something that is highly problematic. That didn't jive. And that's one of the reasons that all of Yale's witnesses, for me, fell on cross, because the narratives, once compared to the direct facts of the case and in their affidavits, didn't hold up nearly as well.
0: Hmm. That, that's really interesting. And I think that, that, I don't know if I've ever felt uh, a level of clarity in my mind uh, to that Effect, But I think that actually clarifies for me something that I felt while listening to both trials, because I got to see them run the defense twice, which is just that I wasn't sure how well it fit into uh, sort of, you know, the, like it felt to me at points like they had a like they designed a character that had a natural contradiction. And so then they kind of had to design an actor and a portrayal that tried to bridge that contradiction. And sometimes that's possible and sometimes it's not. Um, and in this case, I'm not sure if it was completely successful. I mean, obviously I'll say this. I mean, obviously it was successful enough that they won most of the ballots in the round. I didn't, I know they didn't win yours, but they won several of the other ones such that they were initially declared the champion. Um, so it, it worked in that portrayal, but obviously ultimately it sort of led them down the path that got us to the point that we are now. And the reason that we're talking about this as much as we are.
3: I think that perhaps the takeaway for a lot of mockers, from novice, from intermediate, from varsity level programs, is that it is absolutely okay to be creative and it is okay to color outside of the lines, but you still have to color on the page. And at the point at which they exceeded that in order to tell a theory that was interesting, perhaps just for the sake of being tricky and interesting, that's where they led themselves into trouble. Because I think that that Yale team with a normal theory and Standard portrayals of those witnesses, just perhaps better acting and good jokes, because they're really funny and they're really good actors, could have won by an even larger margin in their other rounds and may have won my ballot in the final round. So
0: obviously, the uh, sanctions ended up the way that they did. And you've you know given us some thoughts on on how you felt about the round itself. How do you feel about the actual sanctions that AMTA implemented? And I'll divide it really into two, which is one, the vacating of the national championship, which is obviously unprecedented and a huge thing. And two, the individual student suspensions. Did you feel like the response was proportional to what occurred in
3: the round? So to take them one at a time, it is difficult to give a philosophically coherent opinion on the subject. So I can just give what my gut reaction is. If AMTA, after reviewing those tapes, which I have not done, but after reviewing those tapes, they saw that that witness was clearly recanting the affidavit, which is something that should not be allowed, then I would have moved that direct score and that immediate cross score to ones or zeros. But that provision would have to already exist, or something saying that AMTA could do that should already exist within AMTA's bylaws and guidelines. If that were to happen, I think that would flip nearly every ballot in that final round, if not every ballot, in favor of Rhodes. Because I don't think that that portrayal and recantation is the same thing as, for example, uh, the cross-examinations of Yale earlier on in the round, right? Like, you don't need to have the recantations to have those crosses stand alone in the trial. And you can argue and promise whatever you'd like an opening and closing without needing the recantation to be in there. Um, That, I think, would be fine to do if there's appropriate precedent in ANTES bylaws, which I have not reviewed. As far as the suspensions, I don't know how I feel about the suspensions, really. I think that it is important to enforce rules, but I think that the rules have to be really clear when enforcing them. And I think in some ways... Gale has suffered sort of as guinea pigs as AMTA finds out more and more what they want to do about these sanctions and about these inventions of fact and recantations. And it sucks because somebody has to suffer that. And it sucks that it was in the national final round and that thousands of people potentially aren't going to be able to view very interesting performances and use them as learning aids for themselves. But I, I tend to err on the side of redemption and err on the side of allowing more individuals to participate and learn. So were I in charge of Amtha and there was appropriate precedent, I think that I would, assuming that the recantation was really clear when reviewing those tapes, m- bump down those scores, which would effectively flip the championship. But I don't know if I would then apply the additional sanctions. And my understanding is some of the earlier sanctions, based on some conversations I've heard, went even further towards Yale as a whole program, I would never apply a sanction that punishes a truly uninvolved student. And, you know, like I would never, because of Yale-A's actions, I don't know if I did this or was thinking of it, but I would never, because of Yale-A action, to anything that would limit Yale-B.
0: So sort of, I think our last question is, it kind of plays off of that, which is, so I was, I we listened to a lot of different things in preparation for this episode. And one of the things I listened to was the comments that you gave after the round, and you, you give a few quick observations and then you sort of wrapped it up by talking about how, and I imagine, I'm guessing at least some of this is from experience because you experienced sitting and waiting for them to announce who won the final round twice, um,
3: that you are phenomenal. And this was a privilege, whatever feeling you're going to have, what you have right now, the nervousness and the excitement, it is so meaningful. I, I don't know any of you and I'm really proud of all of you. <laughs> uh, and then
0: obviously, uh, what happened with the sanctions i don't know if i would use the word that it tarnished the accomplishments but it sort of changed the long-term perspective of the accomplishment so where do you see this leading our community the fact that we're now sitting without a national champion and we had this event happen um as someone who you know was deeply involved in this community for many years and i'm sure still has deep connections to it how do you feel like this leaves us sort of looking forward as an amta community
3: I think in a generative and constructive sense, it will need to lead to clarifications about the nature of invention of facts and recantation rules, and that will be very good for the community. It'll be really good to have those clear guidelines laid down, because one of the biggest issues in the community is newer teams not knowing how to succeed at the higher level not understanding the formulas, not fully getting the rules, or maybe applying a high school paradigm where you're still allowed to object to unfair extrapolation like you are in the California mock trial competition, which is just not a thing at the collegiate level. So any clarification of the rules, I think, is really good for the community. I am concerned about the level of bullying that's taken place. I think a lot of it isn't fun, but there has been a good degree of bullying of the Yale students individually. And they're clearly brilliant students who care a lot about the activity. And earnestly in the moment, I, I truly believe, did not think that they were committing any great wrong. I think that they danced over the line and they made a mistake and something should have been done about it, but they, they did not believe and probably will never believe or like many, many years to, to believe that they did something truly wrong. So this, this pile on of negativity that thankfully has kind of died down now because now we got a new case and there's different things to discuss, is something that's kind of bad about the activity. Just like there's a hero worship to an extent of some individuals in them, like the top attorneys, the top witnesses, there's also this need, almost in wrestling terms, to find the heel. And Yale, at the end of the season, was the heel. And I think people took a perverse delight in watching this very strong program seemingly fall from grace. So I hope Yale is able to rebound effectively and to adapt to it because It's not like I feel, I think like, you know, people have more to their lives than mock trial, but in the moment, especially for people who are succeeding really far in the national level, mock trial kind of feels like the alpha and omega. So I I can't imagine going into nationals with a case theory that I thought was sneaky, but okay. And then being told that it wasn't. And after winning, then it's all taken away and I've lost it all that I've got some empathy for that. That would, that would just feel really, really awful. Similar token, I feel sorry for Rhodes. I think that Rhodes deserved the opportunity to play a team that was playing it straight up that would not l- provoke any kind of investigation that could tarnish that round and I would like it if I was a Rhodes competitor to watch a championship trial and be able to distribute that trial so that others could see and learn from that and appreciate the fantastic performances I thought they put on in the round so i I hope people just stay kind and stay empathetic and think constructively about it. And perhaps this—the plea for empathy—is untimely now, because I think hopefully we've moved past it. And Amtha's can go on to their next flavor of the month. But it, it saddened me at the time to watch that.
0: Yeah, I think that last point is a great one. I think it's it's something. I mean, we heard, irrespective of your opinions on what you know should have happened or did happen, you know, we heard from Adam last time about how hard it's been for some of the members of their program, and and it is important really really important to always remember the humanity of of what it is we do here well ian we cannot thank you enough for coming on and talking to us your perspective was awesome and super insightful uh and so thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us uh and you know who knows maybe there'll be something a little bit uh less controversial and more fun that we can talk to you about down the line uh but in the meantime you know thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us
1: thank you ian Welcome back to The Mock Review. So now we're going to be discussing uh, both Ben and I's thoughts on the the actual final round and whether or not we thought violations did occur, whether if they did occur, if the uh, sanctions were appropriate, and everything in between. But before we get into it too much, we want to caveat something that we were not privy to the exact discussions that Ampta had uh, about why they came to the violations that they came to um, and sanctions that they did. uh, We don't know exactly what it was that will happen in that round that they had problems with. Everything that we're going to be talking about is based on the perjuries post uh, that we referenced before that Elizabeth wrote, which we encourage everyone to take a look at as far as understanding where we're coming from. Um, But in that uh, clip, in that little excerpt that she gave, uh, one of the things that she discussed was what AmptA had initially told them were the problematic areas and there were three different areas um, and we're about to go through those but just as a quick explanation you're going to hear a couple of clips when we talk about those. Um, They are all from the UMBC Yale round which for all intents and purposes are essentially identical. Um, Ben has verified that they are very 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 similar and we feel that it's appropriate to use them with the exception of the actual impeachment that occurred in the final round. For obvious reasons, that's pretty unique, and we wanted to keep that um, as it was originally made. So without further ado, the three main issues that AMTA seemed to outline as the problematic areas were first actually not on Dakota Rivers, but on Rory Sullivan. Uh, And essentially what happened in Sullivan was there was a discussion about uh, the men uh, moving – to the back of the store quickly. So what we're first gonna be hearing is from Rory Sullivan uh, in which he discusses the three, the two men who instead of walking into the store walked directly to the back.
2: Mr. Sullivan, what happened when
4: Ms. Anderson came in your store? Oh, well, you know, she came in, we exchanged pleasantries, we know each other, we went to college together. Uh, and she said uh, that she was doing a social media campaign of some sort, needed to go take some, some, some pictures maybe, uh, Told her that would be fine, and then she made her way kind of towards the milk aisle.
2: After she did that, did you notice anything else?
4: Yeah, well, that was when the two guys walked in.
2: What did those two guys do?
4: Well, they... first of all, it was weird because I didn't recognize these guys, right? And, I mean, it's, it's a small store. It's kind of like a bodega, you know? I, I had never seen these guys before. And then, I mean, they, they don't pick up a cart. They don't pick up a basket or anything. They just walk right to the back of the store where Jerry is, the milk aisle and they start loudly opining about lead poisoning.
2: Sorry, you said they went to the back of the store. Yeah. Could you hear them from there?
4: I mean, I could hear some of what they said, but I mean, I was working registered are all the way in the back, but I mean, I definitely heard them talking about almond power, and, and in the same conversation, in the same minute, I mean, they were talking about lead poisoning.
2: What happened after you heard all that?
4: Then, they just left.
2: Did they buy anything?
4: No. They walk in the store, they don't get a pot, they go to the back, they talk about almond power and lead poisoning, and then they, they leave the store. Did
2: Ms. Anderson
4: do anything after you heard all that? Yeah, well, she came to the register like a normal human
1: being. Next, uh, we're going to hear at the end of the Dakota Rivers Direct, uh, Dakota Rivers and Elizabeth Bays uh, having a discussion about a little push that needed to be given to, uh, to Jerry Anderson.
2: So I'm going to ask you again: Did you do something to make her believe that's what she had to do,
4: sir?
5: What we did was, Eva.
1: And finally, now we're going to hear the impeachment that was done by Daniel Elliott to Dakota Rivers uh, and the impeachment uh, surrounding exactly what Dakota Rivers meant in their affidavit.
5: If you had known what the defendant would have said, you would have told her not to post it. Certainly. Why? I'm trying to help you. Why are you you doing this? If you had known that the defendant was going to post this lie, you would have told her not to. You would, wouldn't you? No. You understand what it means to lie under oath, don't you? Yes. You understand that could have penalties for yourself, right? Yes. Why would I lie to you? I didn't want to be here. They made me come here. Why would I lie to you? It's you that I don't want to sue me. In fact, Mr. Rivers, exactly. You're concerned that Empower Milk might sue your organization, right? Yes. Yes. So I need you to answer my question. You would agree with me that had the defendant told you of this post before she made it, you would have told her not to do it, yes or no. I need an answer to my question, Mr. Rivers.
1: No. All right, so now that we have heard uh, the, what exactly was said and what was controversial, uh, Ben, what, what do you think about all this? <laughs>
0: What do I think about all that, 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 you know, how much time you got? (laughs) Um, No. So there's a lot to unpack here, Um, you know, and and we were obviously hoping as, as many of you know, to get to unpack it with some of the people who actually were involved in the route. Um, Obviously that's not the case and that's okay. But I have spent a lot of time over the last several days as we prepped for this episode, kind of trying to get a sense of all of the various things that went into this discussion and, and AMTA's decisions as best we can figure out. And I've kind of like walked through the analysis as best I can. So I want to start with something that I think is relatively non-controversial, uh, which is that, so as we heard you know, much earlier in the episode from Andy Parker's opening statement, Yale's fundamental case theory is the notion that these two men were not above board, right? That there's something about this conversation that Anderson heard that wasn't organic in some way. That theory is absolutely written into the case, right? Um, if you look at Sullivan's uh, affidavit and you look at the information in there, uh The notion that these are, you know, Sullivan's observation is um, these Sullivan's observation is these two men seem to be in on it with Jerry Anderson and Yale's theory, which basically takes that and turns it on its head. Right. It goes from it's amazing. Jerry Anderson just happened to hear hear this conversation and flips it to, of course, it seems like a coincidence. It was it was planned. Right. I think that theory, just setting aside all of the other stuff, is a really unique and excellent example of the reasonable inference rule, which is you can look at it and say, okay, if a witness says something isn't quite right about this conversation, you as the defense can argue a different interpretation of those facts. Um, you know, I think I, the way I wrote it here is, is a good team can take that information and spin it. Uh, spin to try and argue the witness's instinct, I thought Jerry was in on it, is not actually what we should pay attention to, but actually the witness's observations, which is it sounded like a stage conversation. So my first thought process is that actual case theory, in and of itself, there's really nothing wrong with it.
1: Yeah, and I'll make this one easy. I really agree with you. I think that that is what most defense teams do. And I think that it's pretty tough to say that that alone was too much i think that where we get into more of the gray areas we get further into this and ben i'll let you keep going since i i don't have much to add there
0: okay so this is where we get into like you said the controversy so i want to start with dakota rivers on direct examination right and the central point that i have for this is the notion that dakota rivers planted these two men is not supported by the case packet in any way uh and in in my opinion is not a reasonable inference and here's my analysis and then I'll uh, there, I'm sure this is something where we're not going we're not going to have as much agreement I'm I'm sensing um so if you look at this affidavit, and by the way, it has been kind of a weird experience to go back and scour these affidavits again, months and months later is not something I ever expected to be doing. But so Rivers and Jerry Anderson, are, they're, they're talking in the days leading up to when this school board contract is going to be awarded, right? And Rivers is thinking, we're going to lose this contract. And so they tell Jerry there's some time left, but Jerry's got to make a big splash, right? So they say that. They don't say anything about anything that they do. They just say to Anderson, got to make a big splash. At at a later date, soon after, Anderson calls back and says they have an idea. Right, They know what they're going to do to make people stop drinking almond power. um, And that's that's all fine and good. And then they make the post. After Rivers uh, does all of that, after Anderson makes the post, uh, Rivers then makes the observation, and this is the verbatim quote, if I had known what Anderson was going to say, I would have told Anderson not to do, right? So as we heard, Joe, uh, young Perez, testified, we gave her a push, right? At the dramatic ending to this direct examination, Elizabeth says, did you do something to make that happen? And Joe says, yeah, you know, we, we gave her a little push, we had to, right? I am of the opinion, and it's taken me a while to get to this point clarity-wise, but I am of the opinion that in and of itself is a material invention. If you look at Yale's documents, their lines of support for that are really two things. The contract, which says that they're allowed to do that, and that phone call that I referenced above, they don't say that. They don't say that Jerry, or that uh, Dakota Rivers ever did something, right? And I know Jerry, Dakota Rivers doesn't actually say on their direct examination, we planted the men right? I get it. Yale always kind of trying to dance around that they were trying to make you believe that without actually saying it, because actually saying it would be like, you know, super extra egregious invention of fact. But even the fact that they say, I gave them a little push is a material invention. In my opinion, there is no support for it in the affidavit. And even if you don't punish them for context, even if you ignore the rest of the trial and just take the words as they are, you know, the word push doesn't appear in that affidavit, and I know that's kind of semantics, but th- they, you know, the last point I'll make is Yale doesn't get to have their cake and eat it too on this issue, in my opinion, which is that, yes, context shouldn't decide this. But when the entire case theory is every everything else is irrelevant, pay attention to these two men. Right? Pay attention to what happens here and this specific interaction and the two men and what happens with Jerry Anderson and Dakota Rivers. If you strip away all of the other BS and you focus on this thing, right, you can't then turn around and get upset when people are hyper-focused on what you say about that thing because you have told everyone this is the most important detail in this entire case. And so I am of the opinion that the Dakota Rivers ending, a little push, And sort of this notion that they did something to make this happen is an egregious material invention of fact that I don't think is supported by the affidavit. Drew, I have a sense that you do not completely agree with me.
1: I don't completely agree. And and I want to again give a caveat because I expect that I will be torn to shreds on every possible social media for what I'm going to say next. I do not represent Yale I I was not part of any decisions that they made. Please don't attribute what I'm saying to them or why they did anything. But in my, separate from Yale or from anyone else's opinion, I disagree, Ben. I think that there is room in the affidavit for it. And I think that that in and of itself is not a violation. And I I think I have two main points. So the first is about the affidavit itself. Look, uh, yes, it is not. In the affidavit that I gave her a little push like it it isn't uh, and I'm not going to contest that. But if you look a little lower in that paragraph, what's really interesting to me is that line 89 and 90 says, uh, my dairy farmers constituents are all thrilled with how things worked out. One of them even joked that this couldn't have worked out better if I'd planned it out this way. I just laughed. Now, look, I'm not saying that that is like their theory. That's not necessarily I gave her a little push. But to the line of, like, why would that be there? Like, why was that written into this witness's affidavit? Like, clearly they're talking about the fact that this was really beneficial for us. Wow, it really worked out great, almost like we planned it. Like, I feel like there is a little bit there. Not a lot, but a little bit. And enough that I don't think it's directly contradictory uh, to what the affidavit says. And I agree with what you said, Ben. I think that by keeping it at just a little push, I think I'm okay with it. I think if they went as far as, look, I put those guys there, it was me. I made sure that they knew who Jerry Anderson was. They walked right to the back to make sure that she heard it. Like, yeah, that's that's too much. But I think the way they did it was really towing that line. And again, in my opinion, I think it came on the the appropriate side. Clearly, Amtha disagreed with me, and that's fine. Reasonable people can disagree. That's okay. Um, the other point, though, that I want to make is that I don't think that the mere fact that Dakota Rivers cl- planting that men, like the, the the core, the overarching point that Dakota Rivers put the men there. Um, again, that wasn't what was directly said in the direct, and – I don't think having a case theory like that is immediately an egregious invention. And I I think that, I think that it's important to understand that like teams do this often with any defense where it's a, you know, Oh, we're blaming, uh, we're blaming this thing that nowhere in the case is there any evidence that it's the actual thing but we're going for it. And I would give an example of if you think about the Dylan Hendricks case, there's that list of different people that purchased soup from, uh, from Dylan Hendricks that night. And a bunch of teams would just choose a name on the list and say, that's the person. Why didn't they investigate that person? And of course, they didn't necessarily go as far as Yale did. But I'm just saying in the general theory, you're allowed to have a defense theory that isn't really directly in the case. I think that as a theory in itself, it's actually fine. We'll get into it in a minute whether or not what happened on the cross is okay. But I didn't feel like the direct in and of itself was a problem. I think what they said was at least close enough to the affidavit that I found it to be reasonable. And I don't think that the theory that they were running for that, for that direct – for that context was a problematic theory.
0: So on the latter point you were making, you're absolutely 100% correct that, you know, first of all, there's no, like, you can say anything you want in an opening statement, we don't have objections to opening. So like, the notion that an opening statement itself, like solely in and of itself, or a theory created through that opening statement, is itself sanctionable, I would I would strongly, strongly disagree with. And I don't really think that that's necessarily the position while I know just from looking at the documents that Elizabeth posted, that I think AMTA cited the fact that this theory that they had a problem with was used throughout the trial. I think ultimately it was the individual um, instances that were were the major problem. But what I will push back on is that I, I'm looking at the rule book here, right? I'm looking at the invention of fact rule. And if you look under the you know, uh, definitions, and uh, they look at reasonable inference, right? A witness's answer does not qualify as a reasonable inference merely because it is consistent with, i.e., does not contradict statements in the witness's affidavit. Rather, a reasonable inference must be a conclusion that a reasonable person would draw from a particular fact or set of facts contained in the affidavit. Um, I agree with you that nothing in the affidavit contradicts the notion that Dakota Rivers gave a little push um but i have reached a point where i feel very comfortable saying that the notion that dakota rivers gave you know gave a little push in response to the need to uh get this contract right in those last few days when they were clearly making this um you know push towards trying to get the contract uh you know maybe i shouldn't use push in that ter- context mm-hmm. too but it, it's not there. It's just not, it's, it, there's no active, you know, the, what Dakota river says is I asked uh, Anderson to make negative posts. They said, no, I asked, I asked, I asked, they said, no, they said, no, they said, no, they said no. I had a conversation. I said, we need to make a big splash. I said, okay. They came back to me, said, I have an idea. Presumably after they heard that conversation, they made the post. That was that, that that's it. That's all the information about that as best I can tell, that is contained in that affidavit. And when Yale, in the documents we reviewed, cited the contract and that phone call as their primary support, I do not believe, yeah, it's not contradictory, but it's a detail, uh, even though they kept it vague, right? It's still a detail that's just not there. And and, and I, I think when you, you know, the context clues are such that this was what they decided, you know, this is their recency, right? They decided that this was going to be sort of the piece de resistance of this direct, that this direct was going to end on him being like, you know, uh, yeah, we gave her a little push, we had to, and then the pause, and then no further questions, right? And clearly, this was a featured, highlighted moment of this direct. Uh, and I just, I don't see any support for it in the affidavit. And I think that the silence maybe means that it's possible but my read of the rules is such that possible uh doesn't mean permissible and it's also the last point i'll make is your point about the hendrix case is totally fair but a lot of those instances were instances where an unrestrained defendant was making up those theories if teams were inventing other facts from other witnesses constrained to an affidavit to support around that, then I think those teams were egregiously inventing material facts. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting up and arguing a case theory that maybe doesn't have direct support in the case packet, but you can't then turn around and take the silence in the case packet and turn it into even vague direct support for a theory that's not there. That's, that's where I end up with this.
1: Yeah, I think that it, I I get where you're coming from. I I think that I come back to the fact that. Uh, so first of all, let me just say that your point about constrained defendant versus uh, a witness that has an affidavit absolutely valid. And I I don't think that you know teams should have free will to to make up whatever they want on a character witness. They they frankly can't. Um, I, I guess that I just feel like. There is a little bit there. Look, it's small, but like it's not – to your point, you said that there was no direct contradictions, which definitely agree, and I think that there was like a little bit, like a little nugget, and I almost think it was written as like a joke, but I think that Yale just jumped on it, and I think they were like, oh, like great, this is like what we're going to run with, and look, I, I think that there's a certain point of this that comes down to like when most people read it, what's their interpretation? When the case writers wrote it, what's their interpretation? What is a, as you said, a possible interpretation that someone could have if they're kind of already looking for it? And I I, I guess that maybe the, the problem comes down to a rules issue uh, and lack of clarification surrounding the rules because... I feel like if it's possible for a reasonable person to look at it and say, Hey, like this is where we got this. And you say like, yeah, like I get that you got there. That's just not the way, you know, we viewed it. I don't necessarily think I didn't think prior to this, that that necessarily constituted an improper invention. Um, Again, seeing as uh, the other two cases in which we had were very very different from this the other two cases of improper invention were in my opinion breaking the case where there is no possible remedy to this because in one case you have a 13 year old who's claiming that they their their mother told them to write this uh their affidavit and so their affidavit's completely invalid and the other case you have a you know a Jamie Morrison directly contradicting what the uh Carrie Bellion is claiming was the gender and the ethnicity of of the defendant. And both of those are things where there's there's no coming back from it. There's no real way for the other team to to have any sort of a response simply because it it's just completely outside the confines of the case and it's taking advantage of the like this is mock trial. I don't think that. What Yale did is even for the direct. Sorry, for the direct, I don't think that is even close to the same level as the other two examples. And I guess that when we get to you know egregiousness, that's where I come down on it. Maybe maybe you think that this was an invention, and I I think that yeah, I I think I can agree that it, it is an invention. Like it's not obviously in the case, but I don't think it's so unreasonable, so egregious that it it in itself would constitute a problem. Yeah.
0: I I agree with most of that. I I think look I I have gone back and forth on whether or not there was any subtext in the Dakota Rivers affidavit that was sort of supposed to suggest that maybe Dakota Rivers was like that there was some more stuff behind the scenes. But I think ultimately where I end up on it is I You know, I've looked at it and looked at it and looked at it, and yes, maybe, you know, like, their their point that, like, there are certain things that Dakota Rivers did that you could, in theory, describe as a push, right? That may be true, Um, but that was not how this was presented. He was asked, like, did you do anything? to make this happen, specifically referring to what happened with the post and, you know, sort of its impact, right? And when you contextualize it, the question does matter, right? It's it's not, you can't just look at the words of the answer in a vacuum. And so when that's the way that it's presented and he's answering that question, uh, I just personally don't, believe that like i think a reasonable person could look at it and say that's my interpretation i don't think that that makes it a reasonable inference i think that is a reasonable person coming to an unreasonable conclusion that is is more in the line of why i pointed out the rule that like yes someone could look at it and say if i squint at it I can see it. Well, that's not how the rule works. The rule is – a, and I know, look, for those of you out there who've gone to law school, you'll learn that reasonable is a useless term that means nothing, and it's, like, <laughs> the most common term that you have to deal with. And it's, like, a, a reasonable person standard is, it's like, bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. But um, – I mean, except that it's crucial to, like, hundreds <laughs> of different aspects of the law. Um, go to law school, kids. But uh, I just – You know, I I think we just have a fundamental difference of opinion here, which is fine. You know, I mean, it's not like we're the ones who ultimately, you know, dole out or or bear the consequences. Uh, But to me, I look at it. I don't see it there. I don't see support for the specific premise that Yale was reaching for, even though they kept it vague. And so to me, then, that means you're dealing with an egregious invention of material fact because of the fact that that fact, the little push, was Yale's entire case right? If that happened, Yale's entire case can stand on its own. If it did not happen, Yale's entire case is useless. And so for me, that is where the context does matter in terms of deciding how egregious was this, even if it's a borderline case on whether or not it's there or not. If you decide it's not there, it played a massive role in the trial itself.
1: I think all, most of what you said is, is very fair. And I, I think in in Hopes to not make this run on too long and to us to not get too circular. I, I want to move on to uh, one of the other points that AMTA had initially pointed out as a, as a problematic area. And that was the Rory Sullivan uh, testimony. I, I feel very – I feel almost stronger on this one that I do not think this was a problem. I think that Rory Sullivan – look, we just heard from Ian Lampert. I thought Rory Sullivan was wonderful. Adam Chase is brilliant. It was funny. The whole room was crying, laughing. I did not even begin to think anything he did was close to uh, an improper invention. And to be frank, I think that what what Ampta pointed out as the problem was that Rory Sullivan was – using the lack of definitively saying what these guys did and the fact that in the their affidavit they say I wrote down everything I can remember about this incident as a affirmative they didn't do anything except for what I wrote um and and sorry and that, that affirmative meant that it was a they did not do other normal things that you would do if you walk into a store such as you know, get a basket, get a, a, you know, purchase items, whatever. Um, And the problem that I have with Amta's interpretation of this is that I feel like teams do this all the time. I feel like uh, without, uh, you know, getting anyone into trouble, I feel like I've been in both as uh, my team doing and other teams doing this Rounds all the time where teams utilize this fact. I feel like it's just a creative way to look at the affidavit and say, oh, the fact that they don't mention this means that I can say that that didn't happen. And I personally kind of feel like what Rory Sullivan did should not have been uh, an improper invention whatsoever. It definitely is not impeachable since it's not in the affidavit and that's the whole point. Um, but, uh, I don't know, Ben, did you, where do you kind of call, come down on this? So
0: I think I do not agree with the interpretation that silence means that you can basically say if it wasn't mentioned, it did not happen at all. But I think that you can infer a great deal from silence. And my team has done that many times. So while I don't necessarily think I don't feel great about some of the stuff Sullivan said about how like they didn't grab a cart. They didn't like, you know, do some of the normal things that people would do when they walk Mm -hmm. into the grocery store. I don't, I'm not as concerned with that. I don't necessarily think I agree with Yale's interpretation to the degree that they took it because I think that, that there's a tough, I, I think I just go back to the rule, which is, is it just because the person says, I wrote down everything I remember about the visit, the two men's visit, and, uh, you know, it doesn't mention them doing these things. That that they actively made a decision not to do something that you might expect them to do. I, I don't know. I that's not my bigger concern here, honestly. the The area of Sullivan that I take the most issue with is, I think, somewhat ironically, the area that Yale seemed to be the most dismissive of, which is Sullivan's description that the two men entered after. Mm-hmm. jerry anderson and made a beeline for jerry anderson so yale's justification as i look at this document is basically you know in the affidavit i'm reading directly from page three of one of the documents that elizabeth posted in the affidavit the only place where sullivan describes the men going is the dairy aisle where they proceed to talk about lead and almond power i concluded that meant that the dairy aisle was the only place that they went um that means that they went there directly upon entering the store. Otherwise Sullivan would have seen them going somewhere else since it's pretty clear. Sullivan can see the whole store. Um, Adam, the witness playing Sullivan decided to use the word beeline as character flair to convey the fact that the men went directly. Um, I don't think that's a reasonable inference. I think that if you, if you extrapolate that out to the conclusion that they're trying to make, then like, the notion that, okay, I, I talked about everything that these two, that I can remember these two men doing the witness would then have to essentially give like a, a blow by blow. Uh, like, let me, let me say it this way. So they say, they don't ever say as far as I remember that they saw the men leave the dairy aisle or that they saw the men get in a car and drive off. So if that is not mentioned, could you reasonably turn around and say, those men now live in, in the dairy aisle, <laughs> like, it it and I know that's an a, absurd example, but the, the inferring from silence is one thing. The notion that you can say that Rory Sullivan's affidavit—it's a reasonable inference from Rory Sullivan's affidavit—that these two men arrived at the store after Jerry Anderson and walked directly towards Jerry Anderson—it's just not there. It just doesn't say that is an active action to use a misnomer that is a, that is a critical point it goes back to the point I was saying earlier, which is if you're going to focus us in on this moment right you're going to say nothing else in this case matters. we are putting a spotlight on this transaction. The fact that those two men walk into the grocery store and walk directly to Jerry Anderson changes the case it changes this witness's testimony substantially, and there are things that you could use from the silence did you did you see them talk to anyone else you know no i didn't did you see them go anywhere else in the store no i never saw them go anywhere else that's different it's subtle but it's different from the only thing they did was walk in walk straight to Jerry Anderson stage this conversation and then walk out that's what sullivan said happened and that it, it is do i think it is less egregious yeah i do i think if it had happened outside of the context of Yale's specific theory, no one would care. But when you combine it with that, and you take what I think is is you know Sullivan's affidavit, I don't see support personally for that specific the notion that that they made a B line, if you will, for uh, Jerry Anderson.
1: So, so I actually really agree with with something that you were mentioning, and that's that I think that. My the the only part that gets problematic for me is the affirmative that they came after Jerry Anderson was there, and that right that they they walked straight there. Um, the only thing in the affidavit, like the only time that these two men are mentioned, is uh, Anderson clearly was doing a campaign for all day almond milk. I saw two men walking through the dairy aisle, and they were talking pretty loudly about almond power. Uh, I thought they were in on whatever Jerry was doing. I couldn't hear all they said, but I'm pretty sure her- they said da, da 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 Then a minute later, I heard the guys say something about lead poisoning. I couldn't hear more details. Um, that's it. And I think that I, I think that you made a, a good point, Ben. About does the fact that it never says they left the store mean that they live in the dairy aisle? Uh, no, I mean I think that <laughs> saying that's a little bit a, a little bit uh, too far. But I think that I don't mind. They didn't. They didn't buy anything. I don't mind. They didn't uh, pick up a cart. What I mind, and when I say mind, what I think is the only actually invention is that they came in after Jerry Anderson and walked straight to the back. I don't really care about beeline. Like I agree with what uh, Elizabeth wrote about it. It's just character flair. Like whatever. Like it's just a turn of phrase. But um, to to me, it's. It's walk. It, it is this active, uh, <laughs> active action. You just, was saying. <laughs> uh, I hate that I just said that too. But um, it is something where they're actually doing something, and that is they are actually walking to the back. They're actually arriving after Jerry Anderson, and I do think those two things are missing from the affidavit, and I do think that they were invented um on that uh, witness. Where I come down on this, and like you said, I, I think that sans rivers, this just never gets brought up because it, it's A, so common, and B, I don't think anyone considers it to be egregious. But I do think that it's, it is it is reasonable to say that that was an invention. I think that it, what it comes down to is whether or not it is egregious or not. Um Again, in my mind that it in, in and of itself is not I actually I, I don't think that even with the rivers it's egregious. I still think it's just, you know, there's a little bit of leeway for that type of thing. And the fact that, as you said, like it, it's not directly contradicted. It's just not really mentioned. And they're just kind of adding in this little thing. Uh it's it's tough for me. I think that I I still think that I don't really have a problem directly with Sullivan, but I will say that I I think that you made a very good point, Ben, about, you know, we can't just be saying that the lack of everything, the lack of something being there means that nothing happened. I mean, they didn't say that the sun came up that morning. So did the sun come up? I mean, you know, clearly, yes.
0: Yeah, and and I guess the last point that I'll make on this issue is I think I get why this doesn't. Feel like a big deal. I kind of feel that way. They're like, I'm like, it is. You know, I remember listening. Look, I, I first and foremost, I completely agree with your point. Adam's a, a, great witness. He's hilarious. I was laughing during the Yale UMBC round when I wasn't trying to like cry out of stress. Um, <laughs> and uh <laughs> that was a weird time. But, uh, he's fantastic. And I think, it's kind of brilliant the way that they set this up, mm-hmm. in that it it doesn't feel like a big deal, but. If like to me, I, I don't want to get obsessed on a turn of phrase, but Beeline communicates more than just like a, a direction to me. That communicates an intent. Um, and I know this this could be interpreted different ways. Mm. But what I'm saying is my central thesis for the Sullivan thing is this is a really subtle point, but the things that they added, you know, you mentioned it. There's only, there's like very little in there about these two men. They're they're in there. Anderson is also in there. It doesn't say who got there first. It doesn't say who went to the dairy aisle first. And then this thing happens and then they, that's it. That's all that's in there. When you add, when you spin it, right? Everybody spins the facts a little bit, but when you spin them in such a way that it, turns the conversation nefarious in the direction you need it to be for your unique case theory that's based on like a total of like six lines in this entire case packet um that's where I think you start to trend into possibly that territory of is this egregious because it takes something you know it isn't just we're gonna look at this set of facts from a unique way and spin it in a way that the case authors didn't intend it's we're going to make a few little tune-ups to these facts and just add just a little bit. And yeah, does it feel like a big deal? No. But when that witness sits down, you're like, oh, actually, I could see how those two men, you know, came in with the intention of Jerry Anderson hearing this conversation. And that's Yale's entire theory.
1: And so I, I'll say that I, I, I think I disagree with you a little bit more there. I think that, the, the beeline thing, I actually think that to a certain extent, the fact that uh, – the line that I actually – I didn't read and I should have right before where I started was uh, – the start of the paragraph, it, for people that have access to the case, I want to look at it. Line 46, Jerry went on Jerry's way to pick up some groceries. I saw Jerry lingering in the milk aisle at the back of the store. I felt my suspicions were confirmed. Anderson clearly was doing a campaign for all the almond milk. I saw the two men, yada, yada, yada. That I felt my suspicions were confirmed to me is saying something's off. Something's weird about this conversation. And to me, that makes the beeline not definitely not egregious. And definitely I think it's actually there. I think that that I I'm more okay with with, you know, there's something odd about these two guys walking around. They, they, that's, that is what they are claiming was suspicious, was these two guys. So I think that I'm pretty okay with I think that I I, I may have misspoken earlier. I think I'm pretty okay with the B line. Um bit I I think that the only part that I have questions about is that they came in after Anderson. And the the thing about it is and the reason why I really don't think it matters is that I don't I mean I think it still works for Yale's case if those guys were sitting in the back of the store waiting until Jerry Anderson came in. And then at that point they started walking down the aisle. I mean, it it really doesn't matter when they came in. I do think that that's the only thing that's really not supported, um, but I I don't think it matters. And I think that we've, we both kind of agree that it, it wasn't in the, in the moment it didn't feel substantial. Ben, I think you made a good point that Yale did an artful job of that to make it not feel important when it really, really was. But I think that that's part of, of, being an effective character witness is making a small point that people don't think matters that much. Something that really, really does matter. And I think that the the suspiciousness of the situation is enough that I think that that aspect was supported.
0: Um, just to jump in really quick, and that we should move forward. The the one thing I'll say about the the line that you pointed out, line forty seven, I, I felt my suspicions were confirmed. Um, lines forty to forty one, I, I thought that maybe Anderson was promoting Almond Power's new competitor, All Day Almond Milk. And then I felt my suspicions were confirmed. Anderson clearly was doing a campaign for all day almond milk. So like, to me, that line is, has a very specific context reference that shows that that had nothing to do with whether or not they had suspicions about these two men. It was all about, you know, oh, I thought Anderson was doing this thing. Then I saw them lingering in the dairy aisle. Oh, okay. They're definitely doing this thing. And I think that the support for it is, is limited at best, but, but generally I agree with you that this was not, you know, the, the crux of the issue here um and in fact i think our next point which is sort of the the last main one we haven't discussed yet is probably the thing that was most controversial and most uh discussed and that is uh what amta determined to be Dakota Rivers disclaiming or recanting their affidavit um i i have spent a lot of time thinking about this one i've went back and watched the clip several times and read the affidavit and read Elizabeth's arguments and everything like that. Uh, I think that Dakota Rivers disclaimed his affidavit. Uh, I do not think that he went into that round. I did not think that Yale went into that round, uh, intentionally meaning to do so. Uh, but I do think that they did. And I'll give two quick points to kind of try to explain why, because I'm sure this will generate a lot of discussion. So there's a specific line that this all dealt with, right? It's in Dakota Rivers' affidavit where they say, if I had known, and this is verbatim, if I had known what Anderson was going to say, I would have told Anderson not to do it, right? So Dakota Rivers is sort of first asked that question on cross and they're asked it in the context of an initial impeachment. Um, And he says, you know, of course I said that. I didn't want us to get sued too. And then there's a hearsay battle about whether or not it's a valid um, objection. A valid impeachment. After that's overruled, Daniel, uh, Elliot asks again, uh, if you had known what the defendant would have said, you would have told her not to post it. Uh, This is a verbatim quote. Joe does his thing. He says, why? I'm trying to help you. Uh, Daniel asks for a yes or no. And Joe again says, why are you doing this? Daniel then asks slightly modified question uh, twice. He asks first, um, if you had known the defendant was going to post this lie, you would have told her not to. Joe says no. That was referring back to an earlier question prior to the impeachment where Joe mentions, uh, where Daniel asked about um, the post being a lie. And then asks specifically, you would agree with me that had the defendant told you of this post before she made it, you would have told her not to do it. Yes or no? Joe says no. And the reasoning that Yale cited behind that decision in the documents that we were able to review is essentially that what, what Joe would have explained if he had, had explained more is the issue wasn't with the content of the post, but the connection with the dairy farmers. I'm going to read real quick. And I know this is a long explanation. I'm almost done. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I'm i going to read from one of Yale's documents. Um, and it, it says, per our reading of the line, Mr. Elliott attempted to paraphrase. Uh, this is not true. As explained above, Rivers' problem was not with the lie in the post. It was with the hashtag. Thus, Rivers is allowed to respond no. This is because the answer is, in fact, no. He would have told, he would not have told her to post a lie about almond power. He would have just told her not to include the hashtag that might have exposed his people to liability from that post. In the words of the affidavit, he would have told her no if he had known what she was going to say. Right. Here's my problem, and then I, I, I will mm-hmm. turn it over to you, Drew. Um, none of that is there. The, the, the distinction between the hashtag and the post itself is an invented distinction that is not contained anywhere in this affidavit, right? The quote is, I already read it. If I had known what Anderson was going to say, I would have told Anderson not to do it. The question, the final question was that had the defendant told you of this post referring to the post that is of issue in the case before she made it, you would have told her not to do it. Are those the exact same words? No. Do they mean the same thing? Yes, they mean the exact same thing. And no reasonable person could look at those two things, in my opinion, and see any daylight between the two. Elizabeth argues and other, Yale argues that, yes, they're not verbatim the same words, but their underlying reason for that is that distinction between the content and the hashtag that is an invented distinction. And so if the witness gets up there, you know, if the witness had said, no, I, you know, I meant the hashtag, then Daniel could have said, show me where in this affidavit where you said you specifically had a problem with the hashtag. But that's not what happened. He was asked a direct question. He gave a direct answer. And that direct answer contradicted what is said in his affidavit. I just, I I don't really see how it doesn't And ultimately, I think that I don't think he meant to do it. I think it was a stressful situation. I think it was an elite advocate bearing down on him at a critical moment in trial when everyone in the room probably recognized this could decide this case. And, you know, he just didn't give a a great answer. And and he, you know, sort of unintentionally disclaimed his affidavit. That's where I come down. I know that was a lot. So do with it what you will, Drew.
1: (laughs) No, I I appreciate you saying all of it because I think that it all needs to be said to understand where you're coming from. And, and this may surprise people based on what the other things that I've said, but I actually very much so agree with, I would say 99% of what you said. I agree that had, had Dakota, had Joseph Young Perez said um, what you explained of, you know, no, I didn't want her to include that hashtag. I think if that is said no problem. Like I think that that little bit needed to be added. And I also think that you made a really good point about you know normally a witness doesn't have to explain all their answers. But if it's something that's really not in their affidavit, I kind of think they do. I not just kind of they do. Like you don't want that vagueness because that vagueness is contradicting what you wrote before and I, I, I agree with you on that, Ben. I, I think that what Elizabeth wrote, I disagree with you that you thought that it was unreasonable. I think it is actually pretty reasonable. I, I, I get where she's coming from and I actually think that if you listen to her objection argument, which I know unfortunately isn't public for everyone um, and uh, albeit – I think – when you listen to it the first time, you didn't – people may not have realized it, but when you listen to it now and knowing what she said in her response, I was like, oh, that's what she was saying. And it and it made me realize that that clearly was their intention going into it. I I have no doubt that Yale's intention going into it was what Elizabeth wrote, whether that is what actually occurred in the round – I think is is where I, I I agree with you, Ben. I think that I needed a little bit more, and I will say that as someone that was in that round, the second he said that, I remember thinking to myself, "Whoa, wait a minute, is that okay?" And without you know calling out anyone else, I turned to the people that were around me, and we kind of all had that look of like, "Whoa, what just happened?" I talked to some other people during the break before the closings and everyone was all kind of like, whoa, what just happened? I think that that reaction, that gut reaction we all had to it was there for a reason. Elizabeth acknowledged that she didn't uh, mention a lot of that stuff in her, in her closing argument um, because she knew people had that reaction. I think that the fact that everyone had that gut reaction is for a good reason. It's because the witness did not explain enough. It's that we needed just a little bit more. Now, the big thing I do want to clarify about this is that I do not think it was Yale's intention to make that confusion. I do not think... I mean, I I truly do not think that Joseph Young-Perez intended on it being confusing in that way and him recanting his affidavit in that moment. I think that caught up in the moment... He gave a shorter answer than he should have. And you know, in his mind, it made sense because he knew what the theory was. But to people that don't know what the theory is, it didn't add up. One thing I do really want to clarify though, there the line of I didn't want to get sued. Um, ben, you didn't really talk about this a ton, but a lot of people pointed to that as being and, – and we kind of discussed this with Ian. People thought that that line was the witness saying – I didn't want to get sued, you know, with the, the they didn't say this, but with what they meant being that I didn't want to get sued. That's why I lied to my affidavit. And I just want to take a moment to say that I think that that I really disagree with. I really think that makes no sense. First of all, it's clearly recanting your affidavit. And I think that Yale's not dumb. They're not going to do that. I also think it doesn't make any sense. Like, Let's take a moment and say that that is what, what this witness said. Like, Let's say that he actually said, yeah, I didn't want to get sued, so I lied. Why would you say that in court? Like, You're still going to get in trouble then. Like, It's not like he has some special immunity all of a sudden now that he's actually in court. Like, It just makes no sense. And I think that it actually makes more sense to believe what he meant was, I didn't want to get sued. I didn't want her to write that. And that is absolutely in line with the affidavit. It's what we just discussed. It's what he kind of said differently later. So at least for the I didn't want to get sued part, I don't buy that. I will say that the the part that was tough for me was not giving further explanation um, during the impeachment. And Ben, you're right that Daniel didn't quote the exact line. But I think it's the witness's job. With it being that close to then point out where he's wrong saying, well, this aspect, you know, you're, you, if, if and President had said, well, you're actually not getting that quite right. You know, this part of it, you know, I, I did have, I didn't have a problem with it. It was just this one hashtag that I had the problem with. Again, I think that that's, that's much, I think that would be fine if that had been what had been said. I do not think it would have been a, a problem, but that's not the world we're living in.
0: Well, and on that very last point, right. So I think the thing is, had he explained himself, that also would have been an invention, in my opinion. But it would have created a situation with an available remedy, right? So then um, you know, Daniel could have turned around and said, Great. You Your testimony here today is you have a problem specifically with the hashtag. That's why you're telling me no. You have a specific problem with the hashtag. Here's your affidavit. You already have it. Show me where in there you say it wasn't the content of the post. It was the hashtag that was your problem. They could have duked it out and there could have been like a true impeachment and maybe more of what Ian was, was saying he, he didn't quite get in that moment, right? But it's like, it's tough because I see Elizabeth's point that like from a logic perspective, uh, and I guess I should say Yale's, I sort of associate a lot of these points with Elizabeth because I think she's the one who made a lot of them. But but Yale's point, I should say um, that, well, if the answer is no with explanation, then really the, the answer is no. But the problem is, you know, yeah, that initial, initially when Daniel is talking about like, you know, posted this lie and the issue wasn't with the lie, it was with the hashtag. Yeah, that got a little bit muddier. But at the very end of this chapter, he asks her, you know, the, the, the question that I said earlier, you would agree with me that had the defendant told you of this post before she made it, you would have told her not to do it. Yes or no. And that's, you know, quoting the, the, um, you know, if I had known what Anderson was going to say, I would have told Anderson not to do it. It's the same thing. It just is. And, and, and I think it, I very, very much agree with you. That this was an unintended, that this specific scenario was unintended, right? But what was intended, as can be extrapolated from Yale's explanations, was for Joe to say, you know, I am not going to admit that if I had known what Anderson was going to say, I would have told Anderson not to do it. Because what he's saying and what the documents say is, no, if I had known that Anderson was going to put that hashtag, I would have told Anderson not to do it. That is not the same thing. That is not consistent with what is in the affidavit. And so even if there had been explanation, you know, their intent, I don't question, I don't think they went in trying to cheat, but I think they didn't think about it enough to understand that that explanation means they went in with the intent to provide an explanation that was contradictory or not a reasonable inference from the affidavit. And that is how they ended up in the situation where a truly skilled cross-examiner in Daniel Elliott was able to put, You know, Joe, in a situation where if he wanted to maintain their case theory, he either had to, you know, say more in a trial where the judge was already striking some testimony, or run the risk of what you know what happened. So, it's a complicated and difficult issue.
1: Yeah, and again, I don't want to be too circular, but I really want to just again echo the fact that the intent to me, not even close to there, Yale. uh, Ian mentioned this too. Like I don't think that they're dumb. Like I don't think that they thought that this was wrong when they did it. And I actually still don't think that what it – like I think Joe should have explained more. I think that when you see what they were trying to do, I think when you listen back to Elizabeth's objection argument, when you read what they wrote, I sit down and, and like I, – I disagree with what you were saying there, Ben, that um, – that, the hashtag bit would have been an improper uh invention. I I again turn to the other aspects of Rivers um that that do kind of have this like weird haziness around like, well it was really helpful for us. Like I'm glad she did it. You know, like to me that's where I'm like, okay, like I, I see the I'm glad she wrote this bit, but just not this one bit that implicated us. Like I I do see that. And I don't think that that's too far I just think that what happened in the round, we needed just a little bit more. But I really don't think intent was there. And I really – I think the people that feel that there was intent there, like I just – I think that you don't know you don't know them. And I think that that has very little – there's very little evidence to me that supports that. I, I do want to move on though to kind of an interesting side point of this that – Ben, I, I want to get your take on this. Yale ran this theory against Emory B in which they did not get to call rivers. And I kind of think it works better. Like, I I don't know. I feel like getting to cross rivers. That's called for the the plaintiff works a little better for what they're trying to do, because then the, you know, you don't have to worry about the hostility. Like they're the other side's witness. You get to kind of still claim that this was all their idea and they're just trying to shift the blame now. And I actually would find a lot of what they're trying to do more convincing if it was done through cross, just with what the Sullivan has. I, I don't know. I I, I kind of think that would have been really interesting. I, I wish I could have seen the Emory round.
0: Yeah. I, with, with the caveat that probably every single person on Yale's team is significantly smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> I think that's right. I think – Look, it, Emory B was a nationals team, and this is—I think—if the, there's anyone at Emory that listens to this podcast, I think you'll understand that this is in no way meant to be a slight at your excellent, excellent program. The fact that you had a B team at nationals shows just the, you know, sort of fantastic uh, depth that that Emory's program has. In terms of the hierarchy of Amta, we would expect Yale A, you know, going for their fifth consecutive final round appearance, to be some margin better. Than Emory B, a very strong program, but you know, a a B team that we wouldn't necessarily rank among like the, the powers of Amta essentially. But the fact that Yale scored as resounding of a victory as they did over Emory in round one, I think somewhat shows that point, which is that when you have four judges and they all basically agree that one, I think one of the ballots was a little closer, but basically that, that all the judges agree that this team was significantly superior and they ran that defense. They were on the defense. Um, kind of shows that a little bit i do definitely wish i could have been a fly on the wall in that round uh and i just it reminds me of the story i I mentioned with adam that i saw a couple years ago where i saw their their b team with several members that you know ended up on the team in the final round ran a morgan jones theory and the other side called morgan jones and it it, it didn't tie together super well because you were missing some stuff you needed because that case theory was like just half-baked enough to make it work with talented advocates but you got to do the like kind of like stomp around the courtroom and accuse the person and be and you know ask them incredulous questions something that elizabeth is probably the best in the country at um and i'm sure you know her cross assuming that was her cross of that witness was probably stellar um and ultimately In that situation, you kind of say whatever you want about what Dakota Rivers did, right? You can accuse (laughs) them of whatever you (laughs) want to accuse them of. Um, And, you know, I see the value in that, like, Joe's a good actor and it was a drama and, like, that was interesting and it changes things up and you kind of, like, leave people waiting and waiting for this thing to happen. Um, But I I think what it comes down to is what I said at the very beginning of this podcast or this analysis, which is... I think the reason it ended up the way it did is they wanted, they did what a lot of teams do where they saw a theory they love and they wanted a little bit more foundation for it. And they felt like, you know, the best way to do it was to go ahead and affirmatively call this witness. And and yeah, obviously like setting aside the sanctions, it worked, right? They split with us, they get through. Um, You know, I would argue, I will say this, like, and i'm very very proud of my team but we're a much less experienced team than yale is and the fact that the theory did not work especially well against us and that they they won two narrow ballots and lost one narrow and one pretty significant ballot maybe tells you that it it could have been more effective with with some tweaks so i i think i generally agree with this premise and at the very least, I don't think we end up in the spot we're in now with all of these sanctions if they run the theory the way that you were describing.
1: Right, and, and that's where I kind of come down is that it's definitely much less risky. And I, I don't know. I just I think that you were kind of saying this, but it's cross in that case, and you get to you can yell whatever you want on cross, and you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it definitely, as we've said, it would have been interesting. I. I still come down on like, and again, I I think that one of the core problems with all this is that like, it's kind of about interpretations. Like, I don't think that even though I think that what Joe did in that round was, was like needed more explanation. I don't know that it was egregious. Like in my mind, I don't think it was. And like, again, like that's just something that people disagree about, but like, it is, it, I mean, there's so many iterations of what if this had been different, what if that had been different. But yeah, I definitely think that, I, I agree. I, I think it would have been really interesting to see what would have happened if uh, if they'd gotten to cross rivers instead of call rivers.
0: So we've talked a lot about all of the various components of these uh, sanctions. We haven't really talked a lot about the sanctions themselves. And I think that's the last major um topic left to cover on this issue. So we talked about the very beginning of the podcast, but there was severe sanctions, as I think everyone is aware. Um, you know, there will be no 2019 national champion. That that title has been vacated. Uh all individuals who competed in that round who became all Americans by virtue of their competition in that round, as opposed to earning them from preliminary round ranks, had those stripped. Um, every rostered member is ineligible to compete at Orcs and Nationals, and uh, we're not exactly sure who but but multiple members were essentially banned from this activity for next year. Um, and I'm gonna kick this to you in a second Drew, to kind of like kick off this last little portion, but this is this is where it gets real tough. I mean, obviously, everything before this was tough and complicated, but uh, there's a lot of I have a lot of uh, complicated emotions. On this subject, some of which Ian kind of referenced earlier about the, you know, how this affects people uh, and and irrespective of, you know, how you feel about whether or not the, um, you know, AMTA's conclusions about the inventions were valid or things like that. So where do you come down on the sort of severity of the punishments that AMTA handed out to the Yale members?
1: Well, I think... Few people will be surprised at this point. Uh, I was very upset with the the level uh, of sanctions that were given to Yale. Look, I I think that I I made my opinion clear that I don't fully agree with AMTA's decision that it was a violation, but taking for a moment saying, okay, I'm outvoted, I'm wrong, fine. I do not think that the level that this took makes any sense to me at its core we've had i think that this was mentioned with ian but there have been semi-precedents set we had the two cases the year before of improper inventions and in those cases the the worst uh vi- the worst sanction that happened was that team member the 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 uh the two members that had been the directing attorney and the witness um of Bailey Bellione uh weren't allowed to move to the next level of competition. And to me, if you want to say, Oh, this is a larger scale, this is at the national finals, okay, you know, we need to keep bumping up the uh the level of severity then maybe at the most i would buy okay the directing attorney and the witness now they're not allowed to compete for the whole year not just the next round of competition and look like that doesn't that's not great like elizabeth joe they're both phenomenal competitors obviously elizabeth isn't competing next year but joe he's going to be a senior and was going to compete i mean that doesn't feel good but if you believe that's what happened and if you believe that you need to up the ante, to me, that's the high end. Sanctioning the entire team and saying all of you, people that weren't competing on that side, don't get to compete at orcs or Nationals next year, like that just doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't really understand... Why we're blaming them for this? Like, to me, I I think that I I came down and was and what I kind of at the most I felt maybe Joe had messed up a little bit. So at the most, then blame Joe and and fine, blame Elizabeth as the acting attorney who had helped him construct it. But like, I, I get okay, it's their whole theory, but like. Fine. then for their prosecution members, which they had multiple members of that team that were prosecution only, that had, as Adam said, nothing to do with this theory, why are they not allowed to compete? Like, I... I that I'm not a fan of. I will also say that vacating the national championship is a very, very dangerous precedent to be setting. I... You know, we have never seen any type of sanction result in the changing of a round result. And it makes me a little uncomfortable for a number of reasons. First of all, I think that it means that we may get a slew of complaints in the future of people claiming whatever happened in round and wanting remedies like this, where teams lose ballots or lose bids or whatnot. And I just, I don't like it. I think that it's not, it's it's kind of too much power and too much uh, – I, it just feels wrong. And maybe that's not the best reason, but I just don't think that that's what Ampta should be doing. And the last thing that I'll say on this is the loss of the titles of All-American. I think is just – without being overly – I'm trying to find the right words because I know I'm going to get, you know, people are going to throw them back in my face, but I I don't care. I just think it was rude. I think that, you know, there was no no problems brought up in rounds one through four. You get the All-American status for your performance rounds one through four. To take away their All-American status for something that happened in round five is just like, to me, just being like we're being punitive because we can, and again, it comes back to like, why? Like, why are you doing that? Like, what? Why? What did they do that that deserves that? And and again, to me, if you go back to what Amta wrote in their actual sanction note, they talk about intentionality, they talk about premeditation, and I just don't. I don't agree. I I really – I think that they are really making Yale out to be such a villain. And I think that they made a mistake. We're college kids. We mess up. I'm not trying to forgive every mistake that anyone ever makes. I'm not saying that there is no punishment. But this was so over the top. And as Ian said, and I really agree with this, they treated Yale like guinea pigs. And I don't think that that's fair. I think Ampton needs to be better than that. I I personally feel that there was a lot of frustration that Yale has been changing the game for a while and that this was taken out on them. And I think that that's not fair. I think it's not right. And the people can feel free to disagree with me on any of this. But I do not think that the sanctions were appropriate. So...
0: There's a lot of interesting thoughts in there, and I'm going to try to just make a couple brief points before we wrap up, because obviously we've been talking about this for a little while now. <laughs> yes. I I do think it's difficult for AMP to, to do much dividing. I'm very sympathetic to uh, Adam's point from last episode that like there were people who didn't contribute to this theory in any way, who competed for... One witness on the other side and stuff like that. And and I believe him. I think he's telling the truth. Uh, I think from Amta's perspective, it is very challenging to divide that, right? That like, how is Amta supposed to be able to look at that and go, okay, these people are responsible and these people aren't, even though they're all on the same team, they're all on the same roster. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it, but I can see their perspective that they're like, we don't, you know, you win as a team, you lose as a team. And so we're not going to change that policy here um second thing i'll say as to vacating the championship uh i think i basically kind of come down on this where ian did which is that at least similar which is that if you subscribe as i sort of clearly do to the theory that there was actually egregious material inventions of fact then there should be some sort of remedy for that i think i would lean more towards what he said which is it probably would be better for the organization and for fundamental fairness if we had said we're going to um, like change the ballots. Essentially, we're going to flip them. We're going to deduct points for this as the penalty, and thus that you know changes the outcome. Rhodes becomes the national champion. I I, I think I've sort of heard from talking to uh, people that that Rhodes didn't request that remedy, um, and I don't think it would have been granted anyways, based on on my understanding of the rules, but it doesn't really sound like it was even considered. Uh vacating the championship is kind of tough for me just from the premise of I've always thought vacating championships is kind of silly. Like it, it, it happened, you know, when they did not like college basketball, or it's like, you know, Lance Armstrong, yeah, I know he he cheated, but we watched him right across the finish line first, like seven years in a row, like it, it or six years in a row. Like it it happened. We all know it happened. And yeah, you can pretend it didn't, but but it did. Now that doesn't mean there shouldn't be consequences. But but I think my last point that I want to make on this is I I do not have a lot of great answers on the sanctions, right? I, I really don't, but I really hope that whatever Amta has chosen to do that with that comes a degree of compassion for everyone involved. That is, uh, setting an example for our community, right? I hope. And I have no idea. I've no insider knowledge whatsoever. Uh but I hope that after these sanctions were leveled, that the member of members of Yale's team who, you know, could be uh, competing next year and won't be able to past to regionals. That someone from the board or the, you know, EC reached out to them and said, "Hey, I hope you're doing okay. I am sure this was upsetting." Uh, I wanted you to know that once this is over and once you sort of serve the punishment that we've prescribed, that you will be welcome in this community again and that, that we will be glad to have you back. That, you know, if, and I know this is a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison, but if we believe as a community in restorative justice, and I hope that we do, and I really, really hope that the board stands for that, that we believe very strongly and we hand out a punishment. And then when that punishment has been served, we welcome people back. In conjunction with that, what Ian, similar to what Ian said, we have to support the Rhodes folks who went through something that if you subscribe to the belief that they were cheated out of a fair opportunity, should be shown compassion and should be shown appreciation and, you know for what they accomplished this year. Uh, so the sanctions are really complicated. They are hard to sort out. There's lots to, to sort out there. Uh, I don't have a lot of good answers, right? When I talk to people about them frequently, you know, there'll be questions that are kind of tossed back in my face and I don't have a lot of great answers to those. I think the point about, did AMTA do a great job of explaining that the previous sanctions were meant to be a precedent in policy, but not in the degree of punishment? Yeah, I think you can make an argument that they didn't do a great job of of saying that. I think you can make a great counter argument that they put everybody on notice and you should know that if you're going to, skirt the line in the national championship round bad shit can happen like I, I i don't think that's an unreasonable conclusion to come to so the the conclusion point that i will make on this is i spent a lot of time with you know the kids on our team and i coach them a lot and i get to know them really well and i know from recent personal experience uh you know i'm not that old um how hard it is To do this activity and how important it is to look out for college students' mental health and welfare. Um, And I can imagine that this has been a traumatic and difficult experience for the Yale folks and the Rhodes folks and for a lot of people. And if we are not pausing to consider those things, then we are failing our educational mission to our community. And I'm not saying that means we should change anything that AMTA did. But if we are not in conjunction with all of that, stopping and going, hey, let's make sure that these people are okay. Let's make sure that someone is checking in on them. Because if we're not doing those things, we are failing our community. And so I really hope that with whatever punishment has been doled out, that there is an equal amount of compassion for all sides involved.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ben, I think that so much of what you said is really important. And I hope people pay attention to uh, one thing I did want to just discuss a little bit further was the uh the point about the the past sanctions and you know that what what AMSA had meant them to be versus what people interpreted them to be, and whether they were precedent or um a warning. I think it comes down to an issue where you have the same group writing the rules interpreting the rules and enforcing the rules. And as anyone that has taken the U.S. government class knows, there's a reason why the U.S. government divides power into the three branches of government. It's important to have different people writing the rules from the different people that enforce the rules from different people who interpret the rules. And when that's all the same group, it's not anyone's fault, but the people that are trying to interpret the rules Know why they were written the way they were, and there's less room for ambiguity of you know, I can see how someone could get that interpretation of them and I think my opinion on a lot of this is that the fact that we've had the number of of these sanctions, you know having this many recently, and frankly having a team willing to do it on such a large stage shows a lack of clarity and look i to a certain extent i'm frustrated by the sanctions i understand that look i i had that gut reaction that other people did and i understand Ben especially what you said about roads and the frustration that you know if you're a roads member that feels that they cheated and and you know AMTA come down with this decision. Obviously, you know, you're frustrated too. You went into that round wanting to have a fair round and you feel that you didn't get one. Totally sympathetic to that. Um, I guess that where, where I'm trying to go with this is just it's important for AMTA to be as explicitly clear with their rules as possible. And in in the absence of that, to have checks and balances in place to make sure that we're being fair – Two programs that do not have a member of the board on their coaching staff or as part of their, you know, making uh, when they're making their themes and theories. I mean, I don't mean to make this about student run versus coach teams, but for a moment, if someone on the board was the coach of Yale, which I know would obviously never happen. But if that were the case and Yale had said, hey, this is the theory we're going to go with, that person would have – one of two things would have happened. Either that person would have said, hey, don't do that. I was one of the people that wrote the improper invention rule and I don't think that would fly. Or they would say, okay, cool. I think that that's within the rules. I think that we're good. And then when this whole sanction process began – they would be the someone in the room saying, no, 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 like I know what Yale meant by these things. I know why it is within the rules. And look, I, I am so appreciative to the members of the board for what they do. I think that people listening to this, I'm sure there are board members that are gritting their teeth and hate me and will never listen to anything I say again the same. Fine, feel free to feel that way. I still have the utmost respect for every member of the board for all the work that they put in it is thankless and it is, I'm trying to make it less. So I appreciate you, but please hear the pleas that students are giving. Please understand that there is a need for student voices, both on the board and the need for more separation of those powers. Just so In the future, this can hopefully be avoided. Look, uh, just to wrap up, I know I've said a lot of things that a lot of people disagree with tremendously. That is okay. I don't expect everyone to agree with me. I think that Ben and I have been intentionally very neutral on this topic uh, and many other topics before it for a while. I hope that the fact that you disagree with me on this does not affect people's ability to listen to the podcast in the future, to listen to things that I or Ben say. Um, look, reasonable people can disagree. I said it before. I'll say it again. And I am not a member of the board. I am not bound to speak with one voice. Um, I'm sure that you know, it, it's okay to disagree. And um, I just hope that this is not taken the wrong way and that people listen and understand that above all else, the lesson that I've taken from this, aside from a admitted more clear understanding of what the board views as an improper invention, is that we need to revisit some of our power structures within AMTA um, if we want to avoid this in the future, in my opinion.
0: So, in the interest of of time, I'm not really going to go through all of that. I think I'll allow it to basically stand on on its own. I, I the one thing I will say, I don't agree with everything in there, but but I I will say that it is it is very important for all programs and also AMTA to use this as an opportunity to be introspective. Um, you know, and same goes for me in that. I've given my opinions. Uh, we don't generally get into a ton of opinion content on this podcast, so I think you would kind of get it all out <laughs> at one time. Um and hmm. I, I should have said this two hours ago, but you know, I know a lot of the folks on Yale's team just from meeting them at different competitions and stuff like that, and I like them. And I don't think that they, you know, are bad people. I think they're good people. I think they're important members of our, our community. I wish them nothing but the best. Um, this was just my perspective on on how I see things, and I hope that you know, as we turn the page, right? As we're recording this, we're all we've already had the new case for quite some time, and we're definitely going to talk about that in a in a future episode. But I, I really, I hope that this can be a learning experience for everyone involved, and an opportunity for the community to be introspective uh, as well. Uh, we'll end on this caveat. We've kind of already said this, but Drew and I's opinions are our own opinions. They're not Haverford's opinions. They're not UMBC's opinions. They're certainly, you know, in no way associated with AMTO whatsoever. Um, And I hope that if you disagree with us, which, you know, I'm sure nobody will, but (laughs) uh, if you disagree with us that, you know, I actually very much welcome, you know, respective, respectful, uh, you know, dissent on, on anything that we've said here, we do this because we enjoy discussing it. Uh, But that we can use this as an opportunity to, you know, provide uh, some clarity and provide uh, an additional measure of discussion on this difficult issue. So, you know, Drew, I appreciate you tackling this episode with me. It was tough, but I think I think we did an okay job at getting through as much of the issues as we can, given the forum that we're using.
1: Yes. Luckily, my Habford email was recently discontinued as I'm no longer a student there. So people have slightly tougher time sending (laughs) me hate mail. So good luck.
0: I, you know, I got nothing for you. My email hasn't changed in 13 years. So if you (laughs) want to send me, it's it's on the UMBC website, have at it. I'm more than happy to talk with anyone. Uh, If you made it to this point, uh, you're, you're a little nuts, but you're also a hero of ours. So thanks for giving us the time of day and listening. We'll be back in your feed real soon with some uh, content about this year's case and and some more things about some of the upcoming season uh, issues. In the meantime, and until next time, this has been The Mock Review with Ben and Drew.